The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Imagine having a foreign army come and occupy your home country, your hometown. They're pushing people around who you've known your entire life. Others are disappearing. These foreign invaders will not hesitate to execute problem people and crack down harshly on any sign of resistance. They spread chaos and division amongst your countrymen, and you find yourself in a position of escape or die. Now imagine that you found a way out of this living hell. You've heard whisperings about a band of resistance fighters who have created a network, an underground railroad of sorts designed to get you and your family out of occupied territory and across the sea where you'll have a new identity and can start living a new life. The cost is not cheap, but what's being offered is priceless, freedom, an escape from evil. But then when you arrive at the mansion of the doctor who is the supposed head of this resistance organization, you don't find the beginning to a new journey to freedom. You find an evil serial killer and your journey is now ending in possibly an extremely horrific way. You didn't purchase a ticket to a new life. You paid to be butchered. This is the story of Dr. Satan, a.k.a. Marcel Petiot, a French serial killer who murdered Jews and Gentiles alike as they tried to escape the German Gestapo when the Nazis invaded France during World War II. A doctor who used Nazi tyranny and the Holocaust as a cover for his own insatiable greed and sadistic urges. Today's story is such a wild one. Petiot's life was so unusual. Petiot was a mental patient sent to numerous asylums. He was also an intern who worked at an asylum to get his medical license. He was, for a brief time, a semi-successful politician, and he was, for a long time, a tremendously successful scam artist. He was a fake resistance fighter who later became a real resistance fighter. And I want to say more, but I don't want to ruin any surprises. This story unfolds more like a Tarantino or a M. Night Shyamalan script than it does a traditional true crime tale. Today, we are going to learn about one of France's most notorious and most prolific serial killers, a criminal genius, a very evil man. Join me for a diabolical, what just happened? You've got to be kidding me. How could all of this possibly be true? Serial killer, but so much more than that edition of Time Suck. 
This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks, and happy Halloween. Hope you have a great time trick-or-treating, going to a party, hosting, hosting a party, dressing up, watching horror movies, whatever kind of week. I'm Dan Cummins, the suck master, the master sucker, terrible Oregon Trail wagon party leader, dolphin anti-sexual exploitation advocate, and you are listening to Time Suck. Uh, Hail Nimrod, get ready to get mad towards the end of today's suck, Lucifina, praiseable jangles, and sing all this away, Michael Motherfucking McDonald, our sweet Triple M. Uh, thanks to all those who came out to uh, shows in Kansas City, six full stand-up shows, and glad everyone was uh, safe after a wild Friday late show in Spokane a few weeks ago when a drive-by shooting right before the late show ended, uh, left a bunch of us hanging out inside the club, wondering what the hell was going on for over an hour. Uh, the Symphony of Insanity Tour continues next week in Cincinnati. At least one of four shows already sold out, looking forward to punishing my stomach, some Skyline or some Gold Star Chili, whatever's closer to the hotel. And I know no matter which one I pick, some of you will be disappointed in me. Uh, Denver, Tampa, Loveland, Arlington, uh, you know, which is just uh, north of Seattle, and more coming up. Announcing spring 2022 dates very soon. Uh, also, Tacoma coming up very soon. Uh, super, cool, uh, super cool, excuse me, Time Suck free fax t-shirt in the store at badmagicmerch.com. Such a fun design. So much variety. Uh, thank you, Art Warlock Logan. And this Thursday night, if you want something Halloween-ish to do, uh, also at badmagicmerch.com, there are tickets to the inaugural Scared to Death Live Haunted Halloween True Tales of Hallow's Eve Horror this Thursday. A live show, a Moment House digital experience happening this Thursday night, October 28th, 6 p.m. Pacific time. Then you can watch it over and over or for the first time until November 1st. You can watch it on Halloween night for the first time. And then it'll fade off into another Halloween legend with those stories never to be told on Scared to Death again. Uh, Telling several supposedly true spooky Halloween horror stories with Lindsay. And again, tickets available now, badmagicmerch.com. And we recently released several Halloween-themed episodes on the regular Scared to Death Tuesday night feed. So go enjoy. Uh, now, if you'll excuse me, I have a uh, it's story time now button to push. Not going to set up this story like I normally do today because I do not want to spoil some really crazy twists that this story has. I was talking about this story a lot the last couple of days to anyone who would listen. Uh, pretty much all timeline today, we'll dig through Dr. Satan's entire life and what a fucking crazy life it was. Uh, If it fascinates you half as much as it's fascinated me, you are going to love this episode. Get your true crime weens out, lady weens included. Get ready for them to get so hard. Here we fucking go. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. And now we are in France. Marcel André Henri... Félix Petiot, born in Auxerre, an old medieval town less than 100 miles southeast of Paris, uh, January 17th, 1897. Auxerre, now a small city with an urban area, population of roughly 113,000, with around 35,000 living in the city proper back when Marcel was born there, about half the size it is now. Old, old town. One of the notable people listed on its Wikipedia page, Germanus of Auxerre, noted Catholic bishop, born over 1,600 years ago, over 16 centuries ago. In 378 CE, Auxerre was once a provincial capital of the Roman Empire, 
It was known as a trading city in the region before the Romans showed up in Gaul, as the area was known long ago, going at least as far back as the first century CE. The city uh, is now known primarily for its production of Burgundy wine, including world-famous Chablis, grown just 10 miles east of the city for you wine aficionados. I'm not a big wine guy. Uh, I like it. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a sommelier. But I've heard Chablis tastes better than some other forms of alcohol that I've talked about here on The Suck, like uh, Old Crow Ditch Whiskey. Uh, Petio's parents didn't have fuck all to do with wine, though. Uh, they both worked at the post office. Petio's father, Felix uh, Aranier Mustiolet, <laughs> uh, and his mother, Marth- Marthe Marie Constance, uh, Josephine Bourdon, or Clements, as she preferred to call herself, worked at the uh, Auxier Postal and Telegraph Office as some clerks. Uh, his mother would quit after his birth to stay home and raise little Dr. Satan and his baby bro, Maurice. Petio, the older of the couple's only two children, was born almost a decade before Maurice. was born uh, December 1906 for almost 10 years. He was a creepy-ass only child. Uh, very creepy if the accounts of his childhood are true. Petio lived his earliest years in the family's rented apartment on the top floor of a house at 100 Rue de Paris, about 200 feet uh, down the street from Domino's Pizza today. I found that surprising. I actually love Domino's Pizza. I think, they, I think they do a great Hawaiian pizza. But I think of uh, French cuisine as maybe more sophisticated than Domino's. But I guess every culture has their, uh, you know, cheap and easy stuff. Just not what I expected to find in downtown Auxia. Also surprised that there's a Burger King about a third of a mile away from Petio's boyhood home and a McDonald's just over a half mile down the street. You know, if anybody wants to travel to uh, Auxia, for some Hawaiian pizza, triple Whoppers, and McFlurries. There are a lot of different stories that detail a bizarre childhood for young Petio. Are they true? Uh, it's speculated that many of them were made up for the press, but we don't know for sure that they were made up, so they could be true, at least some of them. My gut says that they're true. Uh, not sure how much of this is smoke and how much is fire, though. Uh, several of Petio's neighbors said he enjoyed torturing small animals to death. Not going to doubt that one for a bit, based on who he becomes. Uh, young Petio, another said, liked to capture insects, pull off their legs and heads. Also not going to bump on that one. Feels very possible. Uh, third neighbor said that he snatched baby birds from nests, poked out their eyes, literally laughed as they shrieked in pain and stumbled into the side of a cage he'd put them in. Then withholding food, he'd watch them starve to death. Now that one, mm, that one feels a bit far-fetched to me. I don't know if I'm going to buy that one. Uh, no one ever accused his parents of being monstrous. And it seems like that would take, uh, you know, quite a bit of cooperation or negligence on their part for them to, uh, A, let him, you know, have birds in a cage for some uh, some sort of pet. Uh, B, poke said bird's eyes out and not even quietly laughing as he's doing it. And then, and this is the part I have the hardest time believing, C, his parents just, you know, letting those birds fucking starve to death while having little bloody eye sockets where their eyes should be. I don't know. I mean, I guess he could have been hiding this all from them, but I don't know. I mean, birds do have fast metabolisms. They can starve to death in less than 48 hours. So maybe, to me though, this feels like a couple of neighbors were interviewed. Maybe the first one was like, you know, he he tortured and uh, killed little animals. And then the second one was like, and he pulls their heads off the bugs. And then the third one was like, fuck, Jacques and Chloe took both the stories I was going to tell. This is probably the one and only time in my life I will be interviewed. I have my name in the paper. I think uh, I have to must think of something that will top their stories and quick. You know? Excuse me, little reporter, uh, Petio also poked out little bird baby's eyes. We know Jean. Jacques already told us uh, he told us small animals. No, that is not it. Uh, these birds, uh, they were his pets. And um, he laughed. Well, he did. Yes, he laughed. And then, and then he let them starve in the cage. Really? 
Well, that is evil, Jean. Especially the loving parts. We'll be sure to include your quote in our article, no? And then John was like, fuck yeah, bro. Look who's about to be neighborhood famous. Uh, as far as schooling went, Petio's teachers, at least all the ones interviewed, uh, seemed to all say he was intelligent. He did seem to be very intelligent. He could read at a 10-year-old level by the age of five. Smart, but not a model student. Not even close. He had some behavioral problems. Uh, he had a short attention span, was easily bored, pretty much kept to himself, got in trouble a lot, even got expelled a few times. He got in trouble a couple times for sex-related issues. First, before the age of 11, he allegedly propositioned another boy in his class to have sex with him. Somewhere around that same age, he was caught passing around obscene sexual photos to some other boys in his class. Uh, much more alarmed by the first part of that than the second part. Passing around porn, eh, pretty young for that. But hey, you know, kids find porn and it's taboo and it's, and it's exciting. I don't think it's that uncommon. Uh, but propositioning a classmate before the age of 11, that's very highly sexually uh, sexualized behavior for somebody so young. It uh, makes me suspicious. Makes me wonder if something happened to him. Sounds like he may have been molested. Uh, purely speculating that though. Uh, several of his former classmates would later inform inspectors that young Petio was obsessed with sex and sexual behavior that was atypical for his day. He was fascinated by the sexual habits of famous people, uh, dwelling upon what was often then regarded as aberrational behavior. He spoke with enthusiasm about the homosexuality of Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, uh, the bisexuality of uh, Giacomo Casanova. One of his personal favorites was uh, Chevalier Dion, famous French spy and diplomat who died in 1810 at the age of 81. Notable for living an 18th century transgender life, lived in France as a man, and then later for years in London as a woman. He was an important figure in the 18th century French uh, kind of uh, aristocracy. Or, or, aristoc I was going to say aristocrat, and I changed it in my mind to aristocracy. Aristocracy? Fucking goddamn it. He was a, no, he was, he was a, he was a figure in French uh, aristocratic circles. I'm confident about that. Again, interesting that at such a young age, he was so sexually focused. It uh, does not mean that he was necessarily the victim of some type of sexual abuse. I know, but uh, it does raise my eyebrow. Also, at the age of 11, Petio stole his father's revolver, brought it to school, showed it off to the other kids on the playground, apparently pointed at some stray cats, and then was expelled when he brought it into his history class and fired it into the ceiling in the middle of a lecture. Yeah, that'll do it. Firing a gun in class, pretty good way to get kicked out of school. Uh, be super weird to not be expelled for firing a gun in class. Marcel, give me that gun. And then sit down quietly at your desk and write, I will not, fi I, I will not fire my father's gun in class again. Write it a hundred times. And then you can have your gun back. But you fight in my classroom again, I will have a word with your parents. I don't know what, what accent that was. Another time, not sure if he was expelled for this or not, uh, he and a friend pretended to be a two-person circus act. This is so weird. Some kind of school talent show. And he talked his friend into standing against the uh, classroom door. And then he proceeded to throw... <laughs> Throw knives around this kid. What the fuck? Uh, that's more disturbing to me than the gun. Sounds like he could easily stab this kid in the gut, face, or whatever really hurt him. <laughs> Luckily, he didn't land a knife in him. Marcel, what have I told you about throwing knives in class at your friend? Give me the knife and sit quiet at your desk and write, I will not throw knives at my friends again. Write it a hundred times, uh, finished by noon, I'll, I'll still let you have lunch. Uh, apparently, this same friend also let Petio stab a knife between his outstretched fingers on a table. You know, that old fun game. But usually, you play that yourself when you're running the knife. Between your fingers. Apparently, this kid just fucking let Petio do whatever. No word as to uh, how many fingers his friend had at the end of uh, the relationship. Sources, sources do not mention him ever getting stabbed. Petio had been doing that shit today. Uh, Joe Paisley and I would be talking about it on Is We Dumb. Right? Reading off weird news headlines about some Florida kid. If 
firing a gun in class and then throwing knives at a classmate. Uh, this poor fucking other kid sounds like he just went along with whatever Petio wanted. Go stand over there. I want to show some knives and to do wall around you. Sure, ha- happy to do so, Marcel. Hold your hand still. I want to see how fast I can slam the knife down over between your fingers without stabbing you. Excellent, Marcel. Yes, how, sec- how exciting. Stand up straight over there with your legs spread wide and your hands behind your head. I'm curious how hard I can kick you in the nuts. That's a great idea, Marcel. I'm, I'm curious as well. Uh, as you might imagine, the people interviewed who went to school with Petio never spoke about still being friends with him. <laughs> uh, they were either never his friend because he fucking, they thought he was a huge weirdo because he was, or in a few cases, you know, they didn't remain friends with him very long because he did shit like, you know, throw knives at his friends. Uh, he was an odd kid and uh, they didn't seem too surprised, but eventually he was arrested for, you know, a bunch of horrific uh, murders. Uh, not surprisingly, Petio's parents were concerned about their sweet baby boy. They took him to numerous doctors. He told physicians that Marcel was prone to convulsions, seizures, sleepwalking. He habitually wet his trousers, wet his bed. Initially, doctors didn't know what he might be suffering from, but clearly as a kid, he was suffering from something. In 1912, when Petio was 15, his mother dies from medical complications resulting from some sort of surgery related to cancer. And his dad, who was grieving heavily and now suddenly put in charge of raising two boys, he took a new job in Joanyi, 15 miles from Auxerre. Joanyi, a town of less than 10,000 now, and around uh, half of that over a century ago, a town with no Burger Kings or Domino's Pizzas, from what I can tell. Tragic. Marcel and Maurice live with an aunt, Henriette Bourdon Gaston. Uh, Johnny does have one McDonald's, so it's not a complete shithole. Marcel uh, later remembered feeling abandoned by both his parents. He even speculated that he was conceived by mistake by his parents or that he was probably illegitimate. I feel like he's just doing some typical serial killer blame game stuff here later in life. Well, well of course I killed a lot of people. I had to. I might have been conceived by mistake. Uh, he becomes close to baby brother Maurice and Johnny turned six in 1912, and the two would remain close for the most part for the rest of uh, Marcel's life. Uh, he continued to do uh, pretty well in school, um, you know, academic-wise. It was uh, said by neighbors and friends later that he was always reading, although the books were often about true crime, you know, books on stuff like uh, British serial killer Jack the Ripper, 1910 French wife killer Dr. Harley Harvey Crippen, and a bit later French serial killer uh, Henri Landru. Captured in 1919, convicted of killing 10 women and one young man, one of his victim's sons. A teacher at Auxerre who knew Petio before he moved summed him up as intelligent, but (laughs) this is a really nice way to say fucking crazy. Intelligent, but not enjoying all of his mental faculties. (laughs) In a word, he was a bizarre character. Okay, smart and crazy. Got it. This is a apt description. One of his assistant principals, Marcel Letraite, also said Petio was smart, but when it came to his studies, he was incapable of making a sustained application. Yeah, he'd lose interest. He got bored quick. I think he was very smart. I do think this guy, IQ-wise, doesn't sound like he was ever tested, but uh, would be fairly high, I think, on the genius scale. Uh, more rumors of animal cruelty come from Petio's time and John uh, Yi. I believe this next tale. Uh, one day, his aunt Henriette, Henriette, excuse me, was preparing to wash clothes uh, she put a tub of water on the stove to bring to a boil, and then she went out to fetch some linen. When she uh, left the kitchen, you know, Marcel was playing gently with the cat. Uh, when she came back, not so much. He was now holding the cat by the neck and attempting to dip its paws into the scalding water. Uh, she screamed when she did. Marcel suddenly hugged the cat to his chest and yelled at Henriette that he hated her and that he wished she were dead. Later that evening, not understanding how fucked up her nephew truly was, Henriette said she tried to teach Marcel about empathy. Don't put cats in a pot of scalding water, bud. That's some cat 101 shit. 
right? Do give them some pets. Do feed them and give them water, but do not, you know, give them super hot water. Definitely not almost boiling or boiling water. It seemed like young Marcel was remorseful. Now he's being sweet to the cat again, so she lets him take the cat to bed that night. The next morning, she finds out that Marcel had smothered and killed this cat. He claimed it was an accident. He'd done it in his sleep, but that was bullshit. He was covered in scratches. Clearly, the cat had tried to fight him off. After that extremely troubling incident, she kicks him the fuck out of the house. Both he and his younger brother now go to live with their dad. Right? And this isn't when he's like really young. He's like 14, 15 when this is going on. Uh, Felix wanted Marcel now to follow him into the postal service, but his oldest son not interested. He said he didn't want to, quote, waste away in an office waiting for old age. He wanted something more. Later, he would not be afraid to kill to get it. Uh, also in 1912, right around this time, he uh, turned, uh, uh, six, right around the time, excuse me, uh, he was uh, about to turn 16. Petio was expelled again. So late in 1912. There doesn't seem to be an exact count on how many times he would be expelled. It seems like four or five times. Yeah, he was kicked out for unruly behavior this time for, quote, over-excitation. I love the phrase over-excitation. No, Mr. Petio, our decision to expel Marcel is final. Please, he's apologized. He'll behave himself. No, Mr. Petio, he will not. He will get overly excited again. His excitation levels are out of control. If we leave him in the classroom any longer, he will surely overexcite the other children. And then we'll have an entire student body full of excitation. And what comes next? Anarchy. An uprising. Uh, while studying at home, he also gets in trouble with the law, perhaps for the first time. In either late 1913, 1914, uh, young Petio robs a post box, steals someone's mail. He's charged with damage of public property, public property and mail theft. Considering his father was still a postal employee, this does not sit well with Papa Petio. How he did this, pretty funny. Uh, reminds me of some little rascal shit. Uh, he used some contraption he made with like a fishing pole and adhesive connected to the end. Some sources describe it as like a stick made to look like a fishing pole. Uh, he hid out of sight. I imagine him in like an upstairs window and then <laughs> sounds like he just tried to, to reel in his neighbor's mail. <laughs> like no one's going to notice that. Uh, afterwards, he's under uh, ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. On March 26, 1914, a psychiatrist diagnoses Petio as being mentally ill, saying that Petio was an abnormal youth suffering from personal and hereditary problems, which limit to a large degree his responsibility for his acts. Papa Petio furiously disagreed with this assessment, probably because he said it was a, a hereditary mental illness. He got real defensive, I guess, adamantly declared, there is no insanity in the Petio family. Uh, he was certainly wrong about that. Uh, Marcel is fucking nuts. How nuts uh, he was, you know, will be greatly debated as his life moves forward. How much is manipulation? How much is real mental illness? In August of 1914, the mail theft charges against him are dropped when the judge mirrors the psychiatrist's words by saying the accused appears to be mentally ill. This, unfortunately, seems to be a terrible turning point in Marcel's life. He will try and use this diagnosis, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, as a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card for the rest of his life. And he'll do it in a way that suggests that at least some of his insanity probably put on for show. He was willing to act crazy, you know, to get out of trouble for things. He knew how to play the game, manipulate the system. And I do think he was mentally ill, just not necessarily to the degree most of the doctors who studied him thought. He definitely seemed to uh, have lacked a conscience. Uh, and again, super manipulative, but not criminally insane, uh, not unaware of the consequences of his actions at all. After being expelled from school a few more times in Dijon and Algeria, uh, Marcel finishes his education in a special academy in Paris, July 10th, 1915. He was able to do a lot of his studying at home with an uncle who was a mathematics teacher and get his uh, secondary school diploma. 
which was which was kind of a the equivalent of a bachelor's degree at the time, kind of a combo high school diploma bachelor's degree. The French school system over a century ago, you know, doesn't translate perfectly to today's education hierarchy in the in the United States. In January of 1916, depending on the source, uh, Petiot either volunteered for the French army in World War One or was drafted. So right around his his 19th birthday, shortly after his 19th birthday. Uh, either way, he would spend time in the military. Uh, he began his training on January 11th, 1916 uh, at Sens, a tranquil village with the cathedral in its center designed by the architect William of Sens, who rebuilt the famous chair, uh, or choir, excuse me, of England's Canterbury Cathedral. Sens has a lot of shit going on today. Seems like a very top-notch French community. Uh, had around 15,000 people in 1916, over 25,000 today. But more importantly, even though it only has over 25,000 people, has a Domino's, uh, Burger King, multiple McDonald's. So a lot of incredible French cuisine. Culturally, it is clearly very important. Uh, Marcel would join the French infantry, would be dispatched to the front lines November of 1916. He began four grim months of aerial bombardments, artillery shellings, vicious close-range fighting on the Western Front. All around young Petio and the 89th Infantry Regiment, he would have encountered bodies that were mangled, bones smashed, entrails disgorged. Uh, one French frontline doctor, Sumner Jackson, estimated that where Petio was fighting and when the French in one particularly gory you know, sequence of battles lost 100 men a minute. Holy shit. On May 20th, 1917, while fighting in the uh, Inya or Inna district, he was wounded by grenade fragments that tore an almost three-inch gash in his left foot. There was a, uh, This was a suspicious excuse me, injury as the type of grenades thrown into the trench where Petio was fighting apparently usually exploded, almost always exploded upwards not downwards towards feet. At least that's what was reported in some sources. A, few, uh, a fellow soldier in Petio's unit told his superiors that he saw Petio intentionally wound himself. According to his account, he watched Petio place the grenade into a pipe and then put his foot in front of the pipe opening. Petio denied the accusation, said that that was fabricated by the man who envied his education. In light of all the other shit Petio will do later, I do believe this accusation against Petio. Uh, around this time, Petio also exhibited more symptoms of, uh, you know, some kind of mental breakdown. Not surprised. If you're willing to blow part or all of your foot off with a grenade, your mind probably is not, uh, you know, running at fucking tip-top levels. Uh, yes, I think he faked some of his mental illness, but not all of it. Uh, mental breakdowns, sadly, were pretty common during World War I, especially on the front. Uh, Petio experienced what many at the time called shell shock. He couldn't sleep or eat. He suffered extreme headaches and even vertigo. Lost a bunch of weight. He'd tremble. He was uh, startled by even the slightest noise. He'd burst into fits of uncontrollable crying. Uh, he suffered bronchial complications that were uh, likely from an earlier poison gas attack. When I came across the term shell shock, I did immediately think, was that an old time term for PTSD? And basically, yes. But also, not quite exactly the same. The main difference seems to be that shell shock is specific to the experiences of direct, intense combat. Uh, you know, some of the symptoms are physical, a direct result of being near explosions, for example, whereas the concept of PTSD has developed to be, you know, much more wide ranging. PTSD became an official diagnosis in 1980, first applied to uh, a lot of veterans dealing with the carnage they saw and or were a part of in Vietnam. The term shell shocked uh, was already replaced by the time of World War II with the term combat stress reaction. I'm guessing the symptoms have been around for as long as there has been hand to hand combat war. And people will continue to experience the symptoms for as long as humanity is subjected to warfare. Uh, back in the Civil War days, uh, roughly the same symptoms were called nostalgia. 
a centuries-old term for despair and homesickness so severe that soldiers became listless and emaciated and sometimes died. Damn. That word has uh, lightened the fuck up in recent years, hasn't it? Now when I hear nostalgia, I think of uh, reflecting on the good days. Good days gone by. You know, engaging in uh, some form of reliving those days, like eating a 50s diner, having some sweet pancakes or something, having a malt. I think of tasty family recipes. Didn't know for years it was used to describe something so truly sad and dark. Uh, to paint the picture of what Petio and other World War I soldiers went through and how the term shell-shocked came to be, let me walk you through a little description of how horrible World War I's Western Front really was. According to a 1916 issue of the patriotic British serial The Times History of the War, published in London from 1914 to 1921, in September 1914, at the very outset of the Great War, a dreadful rumor arose. It was said that at the Battle of the Marne, east of Paris, soldiers on the front line had been discovered standing at their posts in all the dutiful military postures, but not alive. Every normal attitude of life was imitated by these dead men. The illusion was so complete that often the living would speak to the dead before they realized the true state of affairs. Asphyxia caused by the powerful new high-explosive shells was the cause for the phenomenon. Well, asphyxia was not the cause of their deaths. An insane amount of blast force from the bomb sometimes was. Uh, people at the time wondered why were these men found in this previously unseen state? Well, because nothing like the thunderous new artillery firepower of World War I had ever been seen before. A battery of mobile 75-millimeter field guns, the pride of the French Army, could, for example, sweep 10 acres of terrain, 435 yards deep, in less than 50 seconds. 432,000 shells had been fired in a five-day period of the September engagement on the Marne. Over 86,000 shells a day. Just never-ending. Shrapnel from mortars, grenades, uh, above all, uh, artillery projectile bombs you know, sh or shells would account for an estimated 60% of the 9.7 million military fatalities of World War I. And it was also observed that many soldiers arriving at the cas uh, you know, casualty clearing stations, dead or alive, who had been exposed to exploding shells but bore no visible wounds, had clearly been damaged by the bombs. Those who lived were suffering from a remarkable state of shock caused by a tremendous amount of blast force. This new type of injury, a British medical report concluded, appeared to be the result of the actual explosion itself, not merely of the missile set in motion by it. So they're just figuring this out. You know, to them, some dark, invisible force has passed through the air and is inflicting novel and peculiar damage to men's brains. It's concussive force. Sometimes this blast force was combined with something called uh, neurasthenia, a psychiatric disorder caused by the terrors, just the sheer terror of modern warfare, defined loosely by mental weariness, headache, irritability, and a varying level of emotional disturbance. The single-term shell shock encompassed both physical and psychiatric conditions, and it varied tremendously in severity. Some men would basically be fucking catatonic for the rest of their lives. Some would forever say, like, have a tremble. Some would appear fine for the most part, but then a loud and unexpected noise could quickly send them into hysterics. How terrible to have your mind scrambled like that. I do think Petio was quite possibly very legitimately shell-shocked. A uh, dude already seemed to have an aberrant mind. Now it's been rocked by fucking bomb after bomb, so much carnage on the front. This could have for sure pushed him further into his developing, you know, sociopathy. Over the last 24 months of the war, Petio was sent to a variety of clinics and rest homes to receive psychiatric treatment. At these places, he would get into some criminal trouble. While in one military clinic, he was arrested for stealing army blankets morphine, other army supplies, as well as wallets, photographs, letters, basically anything he could get his hands on. For his crimes, he was jailed in Orléans. He was then sent to a psychiatric hospital in uh, Fleury-les-Abre, where Petiot was again diagnosed by multiple doctors with various mental illnesses. 
They said he had mental disequilibrium, neuros, uh, neurasthenia, mental depression, melancholia, obsessions, and phobias. And then again, he was found not guilty of his crimes because of his mental state. Uh, very interestingly, while he was held accountable for his, uh, while he was, excuse me, not held accountable for his crimes due to mental illness, uh, he was returned to active duty in June of 1918. That's super weird to me. Hey, you can't charge this fellow for theft. He's fucking crazy. He has no idea what the hell he's doing. He needs to get treatment, but not too much treatment. After a couple of days, I want him sent back to the front. In a few days, I don't care if he thinks his dick is a telephone and King George is calling demanding to speak with his pinky toe. You send that motherfucker back to the front. We need some more bodies. Uh, September of 1918, Petio, possibly shell-shocked, definitely a blanket stealer, definitely a guy whose foot was torn open by a grenade he likely used to hurt himself, became a machine gunner for the 91st Infantry Regiment at uh, Charleville in the Ardennes. That's, that's awesome. That's a solid plan. Let's give the guy who's extremely mentally unhinged a machine gun. What could go wrong with that uh, scenario? Uh, once again, surprise, surprise, he was reported to display some kind of erratic behavior. And his own complaints of constant headaches, which could have been legitimate, uh, got him sent back for more psychiatric treatment at Rennes in uh, March of 1919. And here was speculated by many that he was faking or at least heavily exaggerating a lot of his symptoms. He was accused even of uh, studying up on medical journals in the hospital library where he'd been previously you know, treated. And I buy it. Uh, new doctors now added a few more mental ailments to his list. Amnesia, uh, suicidal tendencies, sleepwalking, depression. Uh, you know, those certainly all can be fake. You don't have to be that good of an actor to pretend to sleepwalk, not remember some stuff, be sad, be contemplating suicide. All of his various ailments, real or imagined, got him officially discharged with a 40% disability pension in July of 1919, when he's 20, 22 years old. Uh, shortly after returning, this, is gonna, this disability pension is going to be uh, coming up a lot. Uh, shortly after returning from World War I, he goes back to school and becomes a doctor now and uh, starts getting full disability payments for being too insane to work. He does both of these things simultaneously. By September of 1920, Petio was able to convince the state that he needed more money. 40% disability was not enough to make ends meet. He was too disabled to work. He's able to get his case reviewed. He gets his disability rating up, uh, uh, increased to 100%. So they don't think this guy, is, this guy is not capable of fucking doing anything to support himself. The psychiatrist who believed he should be given 100% disabled status also believed he should be committed basically indefinitely to a mental asylum. Incredibly, he will avoid being committed but still get those 100% disability checks. He's crazy like a fucking fox. Well, living on 100% disability checks for being, you know, again, so mentally ill, he, he can't function outside of a mental institution. He starts studying medicine <laughs> at the University of Paris. Fuck yeah. Uh, Petio entered an accelerated education program, even intended for war veterans. And according to numerous sources, he completed medical school in eight months. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't that uh, rigorous of a medical program, right? If a guy with a variety of extremely debilitating mental illnesses can just fucking knock it out in like two semesters. Or, you know, Petio was a genius uh, who could fool numerous psychiatrists and fly through medical school. After his classes were over, and he might have cheated. After his classes were over, he, uh, he served as an intern at the mental hospital in Evreux uh, uh, in the French region of Normandy until mid-December of 1921. So the guy who's supposed to be a mental patient right now, uh, he is now working in a mental institution. This is fucking great. He receives his medical degree on December 15th, 1921 from the Faculty de Médecins uh, de Paris. Uh, his thesis is titled A Contribution to the Study of Acute Progressive Paralysis. And in it, Petiot discusses Landry's disease named after the physician who in 1859 had first diagnosed the symptoms of nerve degeneration. 
He is an actual fucking doctor now. Maybe. Many during his time and those who have studied him since uh, have, have questioned the validity of his degree, wondering how he passed the exams so quickly. Uh, con artist, man, just like it's easier or it was easier to rob a bank 100 years ago than it is now, thanks to much more rudimentary security technology, investigative techniques, uh, law enforcement training, et cetera, et cetera. Just like it was easier to get away with murder and other crimes, you know, a long time ago, much, much easier than now. Also easier to fake a degree back then. Like you, you can easily fake a vaccine card fucking now. Uh, guessing a really clever con artist could have faked a medical degree back in 1921. Uh, something to accelerate his way through the program. He cheated and he bought test scores, research papers. Apparently there was, quote, a lively market for buying and selling that sort of stuff near the university at the time. I bet. I bet there were a lot of cons like that going on. Makes sense to me considering what was going on in the area at the time. I mean, World War I, largely fought on France, had just ended two years ago. In a country of under 40 million at the time, over 1.3 million young men had just died fighting. Over 4.2 million young men had just come home with a variety of serious injuries. They needed treatment. France really needed, amongst many other things, new doctors. If there was ever a good time to take advantage of a chaotic situation and get a fake-ass doctor's degree, this was it. Dude was definitely taking advantage of the chaos of World War II to pretend uh, to be something he wasn't a bit later. Uh, I would not be surprised at all to find out he did the same in the aftermath of World War I. Fake degree or real one, at the end of 1921, young Dr. Satan now enjoyed a moment of triumph. His dad organized a celebratory dinner for his graduation, borrowing flat, you know, silver flatware from the neighbors, bringing out the fine china not used since his mom's death. Young Maurice, baby bro, uh, you know, he, he's there too, his baby brother that admired him greatly. He's 15 now with his, with his new medical degree in hand, Perio now moves to uh, Villeneuve Soyon an ancient village on the Yon River, just 25 miles from Auxerre. This is a little town of only around 4,000 people at the time, just around 5,000 now. Super cute looking medieval town based on pics I found online. Surrounded by a still partially intact medieval wall built during the 12th century. And for centuries, it was home to one of the French monarchy's eight royal residences. Prior to the French Revolution, the town was actually named Le Roy, which means the king, uh, founded in 1163 by King Louis VII. Sadly, today, despite how cute it looks, it seems to be fucking struggling. Uh, this really bummed me out. Uh, it does not have a single Domino's pizza or Burger King or a fucking McDonald's, right? No nuggets, nothing. So it seems like it's about to completely collapse and fall into cultural decay and rot. Clearly not doing as well as, you know, uh, at least culturally and culinary wise as a lot of other French communities. That's a, that's a bummer. Uh, Petio now moved into a small house on the cobbled Rue Canot, which was flanked at one end by the Gothic Church of Notre Dame, our Lady of Assumption, begun by Pope Alexander for the King of France, Louis VII in 1163. And on the other side, but what was known as the House of Seven Heads. Yeek. Mansion with marble bust creepily looking out from under second floor windows uh, that either no longer exists or is just no longer known by that name in the internet age. Uh, that mansion sounds like the setting for a haunted horror story. I should be telling on scared to death. Uh, on arrival to his new town, Marcel does something <laughs> that is super fucked up, but also super funny. I think he does something that feels like what a Danny McBride comedic character would do uh, a real Neil Gamby from vice principals kind of move or something. Kenny powers esque from Eastbound and down Petio creates some flyers and puts them up all over this quaint little village, basically telling everyone in town that there's a new young, hip, awesome doctor in town and that the town's uh, two existing doctors, both of whom are senior citizens are complete fucking idiots. <laughs> Uh, he slanders the shit out of them. They, they can't keep up with the times. You know, they overcharge their patients. So unless you want to die or be robbed, you should definitely fire them. 
and hire Petio as your new doctor. Uh, the flyer actually read, uh, Dr. Petio is young and only a young doctor can keep up to date on the latest methods born of progress, which marches with giant strides. That is why intelligent patients have confidence in him. Dr. Petio treats but does not exploit his patients. See, I mean, that's basically what I just said. So insulting and inflammatory. <laughs> Dude was probably mentally ill and definitely an asshole. And this town was so small when he's doing this, right? I feel like he had to have run into those other doctors at some points. Uh, Dr. Petio, may I have his wood with you? Yeah, it's a free country, silver nuts. You can have as many words you're seeing I'll ask and string together before you start slobbering or shit in your fucking pants. How dare you, Dr. Petio? You should be ashamed of such behavior. You should be ashamed of here. Holy shit, Skeletor. You should fucking see yourself. Man, you about cried like a bitch. You just look like an ancient five-year-old about to start bawling for his mama and shit. If you're not going to try and fight me, and I would not advise that since I will knock out your Werther's original ass, I suggest you kindly fuck off and let me get back to putting up a fuck ton more of these dope-ass flyers. Uh, incredibly, this brazen dickhead move worked. <laughs> Petio got himself a whole bunch of clients, took a bunch of their clients, and became the go-to doctor in town. Uh, he was outwardly, outwardly charming, to his patients, his new patients loved him. He would open his office on Sundays, you know, for anyone who couldn't get to him during the week. He'd make house calls, ride his bike long distances, treat all sorts of people, uh, especially children. He gave discounts to the elderly and the poor, even waived fees completely for vets. He literally became known as the people's doctor. So is he a super good guy now? Some kind of humanitarian tending to the town's ill, primarily just out of the good of his heart? No, fuck no. This is a clever scam this bastard has figured out. He's getting paid for all of these visits free treatments included, and he's double dipping most of them. Uh, he secretly signed up all his patients to receive state medical assistance, which paid him as much as he would make if they were to, you know, pay him directly. But now the government's paying him. And because this is done secretly, most of his patients uh, do still pay him, which of course is now all gravy, all extra money is getting paid twice for the same visits. Oh my God, nice! While working at uh, Villeneuve, Soyon, the people's doctor makes a lot of friends. He also makes some enemies. Of course he does. He's an asshole. Uh, you know, more than just the doctors who careers sounds like he greatly harmed. He was known by many to be very argumentative. He would often turn casual conversations into heated debates in which he uh, was described as always needed to get the last word in. Uh, while he, uh, you know, most of the extra making he's, while most of the extra money he is making with his scam, uh, he hides. He's living modestly in, in many ways. He, he does uh, soon trade in his bicycle, his house call bicycle for a sports car, which he apparently loves to race recklessly around the area. Uh, he gets into several accidents. It's a Renoir 40 CV. Uh, those babies could fly for a car built in the 20s. You could get them up over 110 miles per hour uh, on you know flat, smooth road conditions. He would own a number of other high-end cars over the next few years. He had plenty of car money. Did I mention he's still getting those 100% disability checks? Fuck yeah. Uh, dude's getting lots of extra government money right now. Disability checks, uh, You know, uh, getting those extra money from his patients. How exactly he pulled all this off, not entirely made clear. Again, so much easier to run scams when people couldn't pull up your history on a computer by just entering your social security number into some sort of national database. Nope, it was all file cabinets back then. Uh, different departments keeping track of different records, records stored in different buildings. Take a lot of legwork to figure out that someone was running uh, you know, this kind of scam. Longer he lives in this town, the more social and involved he becomes. Uh, Petio begins to consistently dine at the Hotel du Dauphin, where influential locals you know, hang out, the place to uh, be and be seen. The Cool Kids Club. He studies the history of the town. He participates in all kinds of town activities. He even wins the town's checkers tournament one year. It's weird to me that they had a checkers tournament. Uh, he sang, sculpted, painted, played chess. 
Also did some more shady ass doctor shit. Rumors started to spread, uh, you know, regarding all regarding all sorts of medical malpractice, primarily overscribing narcotics and also performing illegal abortions. Uh, he had a tendency to prescribe strong, unorthodox medicines. A rival doctor called this, uh, uh, you know, Petio's horse cures. One pharmacist actually confronted Petio about recommending a near fatal dose of drugs to a child. The man told Petio uh, that the amount he prescribed could kill an adult and allegedly Petio responded with, what difference does it make to you anyway? Isn't it better to do away with this kid who's not doing anything in the world but pestering his mother? <laughs> so while, uh, you know, overall well-liked and making a great living, he's, you know, he's still crazy. Uh, he also was probably addicted to narcotics. Petio was perhaps prescribing himself heavy doses of narcotics around this time, but he seemed to be able to handle it. Uh, he will never seem to do so much that he unravels that his life falls apart. He may have been an addict, but a very high-functioning addict. Uh, also, likely stealing random shit from around town. <laughs> he was described in several sources as being a kleptomaniac. And this seems to be true. Despite having a successful doctor's practice and no dependents, uh, you know, he would just like swipe random shit from clients' homes or suspected of that, you know, shoplift local businesses, that kind of stuff. Uh, March 1922, he gets upset with the Commission de Reforme over their demands for him to undergo, undergo new psychiatric exams to maintain his disability payment status. He declares that he purely and simply refuses to accept any disability pension at all so as to avoid being subjected to what I find a more than disagreeable bit of exhibitionism. But he doesn't actually do that. Uh, he says that, but in reality, he's like, oh yeah, yeah, sure, whatever test you need. Uh, whatever whatever keeps the checks coming. And he, uh, he does, the checks do keep coming. They get reduced though. July, 1923, he's mentally examined and his disability is reduced to 50%. So that, that had to sting. Lost some good money but still working as a full-time doctor, making, you know, double doctor's wages. So not exactly impoverished. Uh, 1924, Petio will meet uh, René Gustave uh, Nézondé, a clerk at the town hall. Uh, they met at an, action, at an auction and Nézondé later described their meeting as a veritable bewitchment. He would say, I could never find the cause of this voiceless attraction that drew me towards him, almost despite myself and any rational consideration, which would have called for me to stay out of his way. The friendship, and some speculate they may have been lovers, will last many years and through many different crimes. If they were lovers, it was highly unlikely they would have admitted it. While homosexuality was not legally forbidden in France at this time, like it was in many countries around the world, it was still socially taboo. Catholicism, very much alive and well in France at this time, still a very Catholic nation, and the Pope, uh, you know, definitely not a, not a big fan. Two years later, 1926, many think Dr. Satan murders for the first time. He starts having an affair with Louise de, uh, Delavaux, a daughter of one of his elderly patients, Madame Fleury, suspiciously, uh, right after the affair began at the beginning of 1926, the Fleury home is burglarized and then set on fire. Petio, not a suspect, but then in May of 1926, uh, Louise uh, disappears. And just a few days after she vanishes, neighbors see the doctor loading a large, heavy trunk into his car. Uh, the trunk they saw re resembled a trunk that was fished out of the river several miles away a few weeks later, which was filled with the remains of a young woman, never identified a young woman who could have easily been Louise, probably was Louise. Why wasn't she identified? Sources do not say. I'm guessing because Petio had done something to her body, cut it up into pieces like he would do with so many bodies later. Uh, police sadly do not see the connection between her disappearance and the recovery of the woman's body from the river because by the time the woman, uh, uh, you know, uh, had, or because Louise had been, I'm sorry, by the time that woman had been found, the remains that woman had found, Louise had been written off as a runaway. And if the trunk, you know, had been found, uh, you know, even just one town over back then, authorities might not have communicated very well with the authorities back in uh, Villeneuve-Soyon. Old time crime. 
Didn't have to work as hard. Get away with shit. Just carry a large trunk out of your house and, you know, in front of the neighbors. Right after your new girlfriend, new girlfriend goes missing. Shortly after the house she's been living in is fucking robbed and almost burned to the ground. And you just, you know, throw that trunk in the river a couple miles down the road. And then even if it's quickly found, you're not even a suspect. That shit probably not going to fly today. Uh, now Petio has very likely committed his first murder. He's fine with it. He knows he can get away with it. I'm guessing maybe she suspected him uh, of burglary and arson. He was worried that she was going to turn him in. Maybe she saw some shit he stole at his house and he killed her to avoid being arrested. Uh, I, I guess. He probably thinks he's invincible now. And he basically would be invincible for a long time. Uh, still in 1926, not long after his lover's disappearance at dinner with Nizonde, he declares, I think I will get into politics. Awesome. His friend doesn't take him serious, but he is serious. Late that spring, he registers as a member of the Socialist Party of villeneuve Soyon, and he goes after the mayor's position. The people's doctor chose to represent the local proletariat, the have-nots, uh, also the group with the most voters. Smart. The campaign that summer for a small-town election apparently was intense. It was a close race. And then Petio goes full fucking Kenny Powers again, <laughs> just like he done when he came to town and went after those older doctors. In July of 1926, he hires a guy to disrupt an important town hall political debate with his opponent. Basically, when Petio quits speaking, he has hired this goon to fucking cut power to the auditorium, <laughs> which not only shuts down the debate, it also cuts power out to the whole village. And I love this detail, uh, starts several fires. I just picture him there. Just Sorry, what was that? What were you saying, dickweed? Something about taxing the poor more, letting the rich do whatever the fuck they want. That's what I heard, but it's hard to hear you, bro. Can't see you, bro. You're like a fucking ghost, like a dickweed ghost. The ghost of election losses past and shit. Any chance you just had a winning haunted as fuck, bro. Uh, Petio wins by a landslide. Cheating paid that, su that summer. Uh, once in charge, Petio immediately gets to scamming more money off the government. Within weeks of taking office, he's embezzling. Uh, he's suspected of stealing money from the town's treasury. His previous political opponent, uh, the guy who had the power cut on him, finds out about uh, Petio's mental uh, health issues in the past, tries to get him kicked out of office, but it doesn't work. Uh, instead, he becomes, in at least uh, you know, many people's eyes, a fantastic mayor. The best mayor ever, according to some. Some, though, could see through his bullshit and were waiting to bring him down. Uh, he continued to do weird shit in office. Once he declared a large stone cross, an eyesore, and just removed it himself. And imagine seeing that today. Your local mayor decides he just doesn't like something. Downtown just starts doing some fucking demo. Just uh, tears down something he doesn't care for. Uh, many sources also say he was still a kleptomaniac, suspected of stealing just random shit, like a bass drum from, the, from a local band. He didn't even fucking play the drums. Just, you know, just wanted to see if he could steal it. Like many successful politicians, dude was a slippery son of a bitch. Whatever criticisms were levied his way, theft, fraud, being a fucking weird dickhead. You know, he blamed it all on lies, lies, lies. These are lies told by my political enemies trying to bring me down. Uh, while in office, he gets married. June of 1927, he marries a 23-year-old woman named Georgette Leblay, described as both attractive and well-off. The daughter of a wealthy landowner and butcher who lived in nearby uh, Sinoulet. Sinoulet is more of a neighborhood than a town. And uh, it's a fucking dump. It doesn't have a Burger King, Domino's, or McDonald's. So if you're traveling through the area, I suggest skipping it. It's not very French. Uh, this couple would have one child together, a boy named Gerhardt, who will be born in April of 1928, by all accounts. Petio would treat his wife and son well. Uh, over the years, uh, they'll play bridge with neighbors, be seen together at the theater or the cinema. Uh, they'll dote on their only son, but not going to be an easy marriage for Georgette. Her husband, before being out as a serial killer, was constantly getting into trouble, or at least being suspected of something. Uh, eight months after the birth of their only child, Petio accused of stealing a bunch of oil cans now from the area's railroad depot. In the end, authorities find uh, that he indeed had bought the oil, but did commit fraud by denying receipt of the shipment and claiming a refund. 
See what he did here? He fucking loved a scam. He didn't, he didn't obviously steal them, but, but he did pretend that he never got them and then asked for a refund for items he did get. So basically he did steal them just in a roundabout way. For this fraud at the beginning of 1930, the court that uh, finds him 200 francs, sentences him to three months in prison. He suspended his mayor for four months, but manages to retain office and have the conviction reversed on appeal because he's crazy. He can't be responsible. He's crazy. Uh, just weeks later, Petio very likely kills again, twice. In March of 1930, the home of a local dairy unionist, Armand Debois, uh, goes up in flames. The man's wife, Henriette, found inside, beaten to death. Police immediately expect, uh, you know, um, both murder and robbery when they also notice, uh, you know, 20,000 francs are missing from the house. There's footprints they find that lead across a nearby field towards Villeneuve-sur-Yon, you know, where Petio's living. People in the area whisper that Henriette is, or was, Petio's mistress and that he'd been seen near her home the night the house burned down. A little bit suspicious. A man named Monsieur Fisco is going to testify as a witness in this case, but for some fucking reason, he makes a visit to Dr. Petio's office to treat his rheumatism first. Bad move. Uh, he receives what was not quite his normal injection and dies a few hours later. Of course he did. If this is true, how fucking dumb was Monsieur Fisco? Think about how stupid this is. You suspect your doctor of killing his mistress and you're about to go tell the police. But first, you have a checkup. You go to a checkup with the murderous doctor. If I thought my doctor killed somebody, I'm 100% sure going to cancel all future appointments. Uh, Petio signs this guy's death certificate, blaming his demise on aneurysm. Again, if he did this, I think he did. He totally gets away with it. The next month, April 1930, another man, Armand Dubois, speaks to police, telling them that a resident of Villeneuve-Soyon had claimed Dr. Petio was Henriette's killer. Uh, local gendarmes, uh, basically military personnel with political duties, they seek help from police headquarters in Paris as to how to proceed with this case, but their file on Petio uh, mysteriously gets misplaced and doesn't resurface until April of 1946. Did he bribe them to lose it? That's what I assume in my gut. Pure speculation, though. After all this, Petio still the mayor. Uh, over the course of the next 16 months, he gets written up uh, officially by the local prefect over and over again, mainly for financial irregularities because he's embezzling the shit out of town funds. A uh, prefect at that time was kind of like the chief of, chief of police and an auditor rolled into one, a government official in charge of supervising local governments in their department, such as the mayor's office, uh, ensuring the taxes from said office are flowing properly to Paris, uh, which they're not because, you know, Petio is fucking stealing. Petio now investigated for embezzlement and the prefect finds, amongst other inconsistencies, you know, a whole bunch of alien res registration applications. Uh, you know, a bunch of uh, fees uh, that have been held in City Hall are missing, never relayed to the proper authorities. Petio blames the secretary. She accepts responsibility. Historians familiar with all this don't think she did it. Seems more likely that Petio bribed her to take the fall. Well, he doesn't get charged with anything, Petio is suspended as mayor again in August of 1931. And then just a day after his suspension, he's like, fuck, this is too much trouble. And he resigns. I have to, I have to wonder if he might've been pressured behind closed doors as well. Uh, the manipulative and charismatic Petio did have a lot of local supporters. They probably all made money off him. And the village council resigns with him and they leave the financial books a mess and obviously altered. So they're all in on it. Everyone in his mayoral office is gone within a month. Did this end his political career? Nope, he almost immediately runs for a new position, a higher one and fucking nails it. Five weeks later, October 18th, 1931, he's elected as the youngest of 34 general counselors of the Yon district. He's, he's just 34 years old himself. The position he wins is basically the equivalent of becoming a U.S. congressman. <laughs> Fuck it, goddamn. When one friend congratulates him, uh, Petio lets him know he's just getting warmed up. That's nothing, he says. I'm going to go very far. 
And again, I imagine this being said by Kenny Powers. I just can't get Danny McBride out of my head with this guy. He's such a cocky fuck. <laughs> shit, man. Wait till I'm fucking president. I'll steal all the fucking money I want. I'll just pardon myself and shit. And anyone who doesn't like that can suck these nuts. Uh, who was voting for this guy? Clearly, he was a gifted orator. Charismatic. Uh, once in higher office, would he now turn his corrupt political tendencies around? No, of course not. August 1932, Petio accused of stealing electricity from the village. What was he doing with it? No idea. Power in his house, maybe? I don't know. Just doing it for funsies? Maybe selling it to someone else? So weird to steal electricity. This fucker is still treating patients, double charging them, by the way, and still getting those disability checks. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Loves a scam. Uh, at trial on the charge of stealing electricity the following year, the judge dubs his defense pure fantasy. <laughs> Wish I could access the old court transcript. He gets sentenced to 15 days in jail now, 300 franc fine. But appeals, of course. This fucking weasel. He drags appeal out for a year. In the end, Petio's, uh, uh, you know, does not get jail time. And he only has to pay 100 francs in a fine, which is, which is nothing. It's like the equivalent of like a couple bucks. This guy is so slippery. It does cost him his council seat, though, the conviction. Uh, and now, after likely killing three locals and scamming and burglarized the town in numerous ways, Petio is done with the little village of villeneuve Sorion and small town politics. January of 1933, he moves his family to Paris, where he continues to work as a shady-ass doctor. He will remain in Paris for the rest of today's story, where the majority of this tale's action is. And I will dive into all that action right after today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. 
To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening, Meat Sacks. Now let's return to Paris. It's 1933. Dr. Marcel Petiot is establishing himself as the best doctor ever with a lot more lies. Doctrine was uh, more competitive in Paris, so Petiot beefed up his resume with a bunch of bullshit. On new flyers, he claimed that he was an expert in a number of medical fields that he had no experience in and listed a myriad of credentials, some of which were real, most of which were completely fabricated. (laughs) In one of his advertisements, he actually said he was an intern at a mental hospital where he was actually a patient. Just, fuck yeah, man, I I spent a lot of time in that hospital, you know, studying some some real crazy bastards. He says, here, are you a patient? Uh, Nah, man, nah, man, fuck that noise. I just, you know, I just did some deep undercover shit, bro. Uh, some new real hands-on learning type stuff you probably haven't heard of because, I mean, no offense, but, um, you know, you didn't go to night schools like I did. You weren't an, an elite student. I can tell that. <laughs> I can tell that just by looking at you. I, I'm not saying you're dumb and shit, but you're like a tick's ball hair above dumb. You know what I'm saying? Uh, outside his home office at 66, Rue, uh, Rue de Carmentin, Petio erected a, a brass plaque so jam-packed with phony endorsements that another physician complained to a local medical association until Petio was uh, forced to remove it. I don't, know, I don't know what it said. I wish I did. I'm sure it was fucking fantastic. Office of Dr. Petio. Voted top fucking doctor of all time. 
by the French Medical Association, all of them, has medical degrees from France, Germany, New Zealand, Britain, Luxembourg, Spain, Kentucky, Guam, specializes in brain transplants, heart reconstruction, arm extensions, eyeball replacements, finger additions. Most services completed in 15 minutes or less. Uh, Despite his constant lying and stealing to the majority of his patients, he appeared to be nothing less than a very good, credible, and reliable doctor. Uh, He was certainly no dummy. Uh, He would have thousands of patients, and years later, at the height of his infamy, 2,000 of them would be interviewed. Not a single one of them would criticize Dr. Petio in any way. Nothing but glowing reviews. Uh, Once again, there were rumors of illegal abortions, excessive prescriptions of addictive remedies to drug addicts. I'm guessing that just helped his popularity. Some of his patients who might have criticized Dr. Petio, uh, Dr. Petio probably had a hard time doing so because, you know, he killed him. Uh, 1934, 30-year-old Romande Hans uh, visited Petio for treatment of an abscess in her mouth. She was still unconscious when Petio drove her home after surgery. She never regained consciousness and died several hours later. Her mom, Madame Anna Coquille, uh, demanded an autopsy, which revealed significant levels of morphone in Romande's body. Coroner postponed burial until a full investigation was completed, and then authorities closed the case without filing charges. So, mm, suspicious. Madame Coquille, uh, Madame, uh, renewed her complaints in 1942, but the court upheld its original finding of death by natural causes. 1935, Petio would face his first investigation regarding his flippant narcotics prescriptions, but again, he avoided any criminal consequences as the police found no conclusive evidence against him. He has to feel just bulletproof at this point. Next year, 1936, at the age of 39, Petio is appointed uh, Médecin d'État Civil, which uh, translates basically to civil, uh, civil registrar. He's got another government title, just one he was not elected to. This position granted him the authority to write death certificates, which, you know, helped him with his evil scam, uh, the one he'll pull during World War II that will earn him the label of Dr. Satan. April of 1936, he's caught shoplifting a book. Okay. All right. This is some klepto shit. Uh, why, is he, why is he doing that? He just loved to steal or felt compelled to steal to get away with being a, being a bad, naughty boy. May actually have been a kleptomaniac. I think he probably was, uh, which is defined as a serious disorder that causes an irresistible urge to steal items that aren't needed and are usually of little value. He's making plenty of money. He could easily buy all the books he wants. Uh, he's still ch- double charging patients. Uh, this motherfucker is still getting 50% disability payments, getting anywhere from 40% to 100% disability checks since 1919 for 17 years now. When he's uh, confronted for stealing the book, he assaults a policeman, escapes on foot, uh, but the guy got a real good look at him. He gets nervous. He's going to be caught. Two days later, he surrenders and starts and just immediately just begs for mercy, puts on a whole show, shows up in tears, you know, pleads for mercy. He brings his military discharge records to prove he can't be responsible for his actions because he's crazy. He has a faulty brain. And once again, the police take it easy on him. They drop the assault on the officer charge and, and acquit him of theft due to insanity. He just continues to constantly get away with his bullshit. Uh, at home, his wife, Georgette, has grown pretty concerned about her husband's overall mental state. And she tries to have him committed uh, for kleptomania in August of 1936. And, and she does get him committed for a little while. Uh, you know, he, he goes to the asylum. He just won't stay as long as he probably should have. Almost immediately upon his arrival at the asylum, he begins to uh, plead for his release. He assures the staff that he's fine. He's totally fine. His madness has passed. It was a temporary thing. He actually told doctors that the real reason he'd been stealing shit, <laughs> this made me laugh harder than anything else I found in the research. His recent kleptomania uh, was kicked up, caused by a preoccupation with the new invention of his, 
a suction machine designed to relieve constipation. And he promised he was going to stop using it. He's going to get rid of it. Incredibly, the 1920s, 1930s were, were the golden age of purgation. Literally hundreds of brands of bowel cleansers competed for consumer dollars and all kinds of contraptions. They'd warn of bowel bloat. A lot of doctors believe that having too much poop in your butt was the root of most, if not all, disease. And there was a whole bunch of laxatives and just weird fucking devices on the market. And people making them. And, <laughs> and Petio claimed to have become obsessed with one that, you know, uh, that he made is uh, it's kind of like a, like a butthole vacuum, like a butthole pump. He claimed to have created a pump that would massage your intestines and cure chronic constipation. Suck all that poop out. Remember, <laughs> remember how sexually obsessed he was as a kid? I have to wonder if he found some kind of butthole plunger sexually satisfying. Like it was more sex toy than bowel cleanser. He just loved putting some kind of, you know, suction device on his loophole knot and just pumping away and just seeing, seeing if he could untie it. He might not have been lying about using one of these, you know, jerking off with one hand, butthole plunging with the other. I wouldn't be surprised. And maybe that did make him get a little crazier. I mean, I mean, who the hell knows? Maybe if I started plunging my butthole, I'd start stealing random shit. Maybe, you know, maybe if you, you suck your butthole hard enough, you can pull your brain out of alignment a little bit. Uh, anyway, Dr. Uh, Rogue de Frazac found Petio chronically unbalanced. Yeah, I bet. He, fucking, he, he pulled his whole body out of whack with that butthole suction. Uh, he never, you know, made clear the reasons for uh, why he would recommend, though, that he be released in early September 1936. Three more psychiatrists brought in to review his case. They felt that he could benefit from extensive long-term treatment, but they couldn't come up with a good legal reason to hold him. Not illegal to butthole plunge yourself into a, a hankering for some shoplifting. So in February of 1937, you know, he did say there a little bit, uh, Petio released back into the world. Uh, he is, he hated this uh, last incarceration stint, apparently. Uh, it seemed for a minute that he was uh, reformed. He tried to be on his best behavior, kind of. He kept double charging patients, you know, kept collecting disability payments, but no more allegations of stealing for a little while. Instead, he's not going to go totally clean. He now starts to focus on really scamming the tax man. God, if you count him faking mental illnesses to get out of the military service, this dude, who's now 40 years old, has been running continuous scams against the government for literally his entire adult life. Between 1937 and 1940, Petio reports less than 10% of his actual income. He went big on this one. In 1938, for instance, he declared earning only 13,100 francs. <laughs> in fact, he earned closer to 500,000. So he's a little, his estimation was a little bit off. Hey, you know what? He's, hey, I'm crazy. I'm bad with math. I, 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 can't, I don't know how to carry the one. I don't know if you're supposed to carry the one or subtract, you know, 490 some thousand or 80 some thousand. Uh, dude was making great money. The hourly wage for a Parisian man in 1938 was 10.68 francs an hour. I love it when I get lucky and can find a solid source for a random stat like that. Hail Nimrod. Uh, 52 weeks a year, 40 hours a week at that wage is a little over 22,200 francs a year. He made over 22 times that. <laughs> and he's still cheating the government. And I doubt he's, you know, that income counts all the money he was, uh, you know, getting from scams. So he gets a bit, in a bit of trouble for tax fraud here, but not much though. He's charged with fraud, fined 35,000 francs, despite an emotional defense that included pleas of, get this, poverty. And then because of the upcoming war, doesn't seem like he ever paid that $35,000 francs. Uh, seems like it was lost in the upcoming chaos. He fucking did it again. Fucking weasel. This guy tried to ruin your life. I think you'd probably have to kill him to, to make it go away. It'd be real hard to outweasel this son of a bitch. September 1st, 1939, French authorities suddenly have a lot more than shady doctors to worry about. German troops invade Poland, start World War II. All of nervous, or all of uh, Europe, nervous as fuck. 
The Polish resistance couldn't withstand the power of the German military machine, and their defenses would quickly collapse the following month. Not even going to make any Polish jokes this time. We already already did that, uh, covering this attack in previous episodes. Also in October, the seven-month-long phony war between France and Germany would begin. It was called the phony war as no large-scale land operations were undertaken for the Allies or Germany. There was some economic warfare, naval blockades, a little bit of skirmish, skirmish before it, and then that was about it. Uh, France did initiate what was called the Saar Offensive uh, in September, but where they started to attack Germany with the intention of assisting Poland, but it fizzled out real quick. They withdrew. It only lasted a few days, where France suffered roughly 2,000 casualties. They were like, ouchie, ooh, ah, these Nazis are fucking tough. Germany suffered around 700, and then they were like, nah, okay, we'll just, we'll just go back home and hope this, things don't get worse. But of course they did. April of 1940, Germany invaded Denmark and Norway. The following month, the Nazis entered Holland, Belgium, and, you know, France. June 1940, German troops seized the French capital. France fell quick. Their political leadership was really divided, and their military not nearly as organized or as powerful as the Nazis. 40,000 French soldiers surrendered on, Ju- surrendered on June 22nd, uh, while a separate band of French resistance fighters armed and organized for, you know, several long years of guerrilla warfare. After the 1940 German defeat of France, French citizens uh, drafted now for forced labor in Germany. And now in this war, probable murderer at this point, definite scam artist, Marcel Petio, kind of becomes a hero for a little bit. Not even kidding. As an act of what doesn't appear to be anything other than heroism, Petio provides false medical disability certificates to countrymen who are drafted to fight for Germany. I mean... Kind of perfect. I mean, if anybody knew how to get away with a fake medical disability, it was this motherfucker. And now he strangely started to use that knowledge for good. He also treated the illnesses of workers who returned uh, to France from Germany. And then through all this, he would learn information about Nazi troop movements and weapons development. And now this butthole plunger story starts to get real weird. A few years uh, later, after his eventual arrest for multiple murders, he'll claim to have been an important French resistance fighter. And while he, uh, you know, did do some good stuff, he wasn't associated with resistance when he said he was, and most of his claims of wartime heroics and, you know, were, will be obvious lies. He'll talk a bunch of bullshit about his bravery in battles that were literally never fought. He'll make up battles. He'll claim to have invented some secret weapons that could do things like kill Nazis without leaving any forensic evidence. Uh, you know, what kind of secret weapons? Well, he doesn't really give away all the details. They're, <laughs> they're secret. Uh, he'll also claim to have planted booby traps all over Paris to kill Nazis and to have had high-level meetings with Allied commanders and to have worked with a non-existent made-up group of Spanish anti-fascists. You know, not evidence for any of this, but, however, many years later, in 1980, he will be cited by former U.S. spymaster Colonel John F. Grombach as a World War II Allied information source, an intelligence source. Grombach is, uh, was a founder and the head of a small independent espionage agency later known as The Pond. It operated from 1942 to 1955. The Pond operated in at least 32 countries. They were very active in France during the war. Uh, Grombach, born in New Orleans, the son of a French consul, born to both American and French citizenship, had a special place in his heart for France. And Grombach asserted that Petio had reported on the uh, Captain Forest Massacre, German missile development at uh, Penamenda, and the names of uh, Opfer agents, you know, gave the names of Opfer agents, German military intelligence service agents to the U.S., all these claims not supported by any of the records of other intelligence services. In 2001, some pond records were discovered, including a cable that did mention Petio by name. Uh, as doctor and source for the pond, Petio used his occupation allegedly as a doctor to gain information from his patient's gossip, pass that on to Grombach. Stationed in Paris, Petio had German opfer officers and East Paris refugees as patients. 
And with that info, Petio identified, you know, the German officers that had been sent to the U.S. Uh, to be spies, some of which were later found by the FBI, and then convinced to work for the U.S. So he did do some spy shit, but probably was not hanging out with allied military military commanders. Probably not inventing secret weapons he couldn't talk about and or planting booby traps and kicking ass in, you know, battles that never happened. So, uh, you know, some of what he did added credence to his later claims that he was part of the French resistance, but he was not, not like he claimed at least, but he did work with the allies. So weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, he, he, he didn't, he didn't do all the stuff that he uh, pretended, but he did do some stuff. Ah, he, he would now use the German occupation, and the Nazis tactics to bring to fruition his greatest and most lethal money-making scheme thus far. Petio now makes up a fake French resistance network early in the war known as the Fly Talks Network, named for a popular insecticide. It was a real network, but a criminal one, not a resistance one that he was in charge of. His informers were called flies. The story was these flies would spy on Gestapo headquarters in Paris to identify German collaborators so they could be assassinated by French resistance members. That part is fucking complete nonsense. Uh, they did help get innocent people killed for money. He claimed that his network, Fly Talks, worked in conjunction in conjunction with Argentinian authorities to safely transport people to South America without the knowledge of German invaders. And now he began to leak out information to patients and others he felt he could trust. He told them he had escape routes in a place for, for Jews, uh, for wanted resistance fighters, for anyone who could afford his price of 25,000 francs per head to flee Nazi-occupied France to the safety of Argentina. For that price, he promised safe passage to South America through Portugal, complete with all the necessary paperwork to start a new life. But of course, he didn't have any of that. The only escape he offered was death, but he wouldn't start killing quite yet, just starting to get the word out. In early 1941, Petio buys a house at 21 Rue Le Sur near the Arc de Triomphe. It's a fancy-ass home. At one point, it was the home of a lesser French princess. It was a three-story 19th century home with a private stable courtyard. Uh, gave him legitimacy as a big-time player in the resistance movement, a rich doctor with the ability to get you out of Europe. Uh, gave him privacy to hide bodies. It seems that his wife did know about this home, but only barely visited it once or twice right after they bought it. And then he told her he was going to extensively renovate it and then reveal it to her when, it, when he was finished. Um, then he lived with her in this apartment. Then he would sneak off and murder people in this other home. So, you know, she didn't, she didn't get to see, she didn't see it. Uh, Dr. Satan's murder mansion. July of 1942, Petio is arrested, but not for killing anyone, not yet. No, he's convicted of over-prescribing over narcotics. This comes up again. But then the two addicts who are going to testify against him, wouldn't you know it, they disappear. That's weird. He was fined 2,400 francs after getting the fine reduced from, from 20,000 francs. An inspector named Roger Guinot actually suspected Petio of murder of the addicts, but he couldn't prove it at this time. By early 1942, Petio is now using the alias Dr. Eugene to kill as part of his fly talk scam. He now has three primary accomplices, Raoul Fourier, Edmond Pintar, and uh, René Gustave uh, Nez, Nez, oh my God, Nezonde, Nezonde, uh, directing victims to him. Once victims were under his control, Petio told them that Argentine officials required all entrants to the country to be inoculated against disease. And with this excuse, he would inject them with a massive amount of cyanide. And large doses of cyanide can kill very quickly, in less than a minute. You get weak, dizzy, have trouble breathing, pass out, then you go into cardiac arrest and you die. Once his victims were dead, he took all their valuables in addition to those 25,000 francs, and then he disposed of their bodies. At first, Petio dumped the bodies in the Seine River, uh, but more and more body parts kept surfacing. He got nervous. He started hiding bodies now by submerging them in quicklime on his property for rapid decomposition, or he would incinerate them. 
In September of 1942, he may have killed his first victims in this particular scam. Two pimps from uh, Paris, Joseph uh, Riocru and Adrian uh, Estebetegay, thought to be the first or among the first to seek out his services. Recently, they came up with a new scheme, armed robbery while disguised as Gestapo or yeah, Gestapo agents. For these crimes, they were now being hunted by both the French and the German police. And then they heard about Dr. Eugene and Flytox. Traveling with his mistress, Claudia Chameau, and another, and another couple, a pimp Francois Albertini and prostitute Annette Bassett, uh, real cruel, paid his fee that September, then promptly vanished with his party uh, when he traveled, you know, when he went into 21 Rue Le Sueur. The other pimp, this guy's name is so, so fucking, has so many accents, Estebetegay, <laughs> I think there's no pronunciation for that, and his girlfriend, uh, Giselle Rosne, uh, followed in March 1943, also vanishing without a trace. Petio would later boast of killing the three pimps and their women, branding all six as Nazi collaborators. He did it for his country. He touted their executions as a, as a patriotic duty. Now, why would the third pimp sink out Dr. Eugene after the others disappeared six months earlier? Well, he just thought his friends didn't want to send a letter, you know, and risk alerting Nazis where they were now. Petio was able to use this, uh, well, your friends are going to reach out to you because they don't want to risk being found excuse as a way to rationalize why people's friends and families, you know, never contacted them after they paid his fee and just fucking disappeared. He put a lot of thought into this evil shit. Others who unfortunately used Dr. Petio's services included uh, Nellie Denise Houghton, a pregnant newlywed who came looking for an abortion in July 1941, never seen again, believed that she wanted to try and start a new life for herself to avoid dealing with the scandal of getting pregnant before marriage. Now, if that's true, how fucking ridiculous. So ridiculous that we humans create such shame about stuff like that. Make people want to literally flee the country because their family will be so embarrassed that they had sex before marriage. Oh, gosh dang. Oh, my. Drag thee to the village square and stone thy harlot. Uh, such a bummer. History is full of so many stupid assholes. Uh, Lucifina sometimes thinks about reversing time and going back and smiting a lot of these motherfuckers. Hey, Lucifina. June 1942, Petio murders a couple who were possibly his first Jewish victims. Dr. Paulion Obromberger, elderly Jewish man who planned to flee with his wife, uh, they disappear from Paris. A little harder for Petio to later brand this couple as Nazi collaborators and to tout their executions as his patriotic duty. A month later, three German Jewish people, the Nellers, a husband, wife, and son, vanish after a consultation with Petio. Their chopped up, dismembered remains would be fished out of the Seine uh, or Seine River in August. Kurt Neller, 41-year-old electrician, his wife Margaret, their son Rene, had left their native Germany in June of 1933, six months after the rise of Adolf Hitler. Now, he'd sought French citizenship at the outbreak of the war, volunteered for the French Foreign Legion, where he served until September of 1940. Again, these people clearly not Nazi collaborators. Family of three who escaped Hitler only to be killed by a different monster in France. Uh, three more refugees, the Wolf family, Rachel Wolf, 60-year-old widow, her son Maurice, age 36, a lot of Maurice's in this episode, and Maurice's wife, 47-year-old Lena. They disappeared uh, when they went into uh, 21 Rue Les Soeurs in 1942, along with six of their friends. Another pimp, Joseph Pareschi, also made the dead-end journey with his mistress, Josephine Ami Grippe. Just some of his many, many victims. And they might not have all died somewhat peacefully, thanks to that fake vaccine shot that was really cyanide. More on how they may have died later. This guy was a monster. Numerous dismembered victims dragged from the Seine in 1942 and 43. Remains found in the river included nine heads, four thighs, shit ton of other mutilated pieces. French police and coroners were baffled, unable to identify the vast majority of the dead. Uh, Gestapo agents overseeing their French counterparts, they could fucking care less about some dead Frenchmen, right? Whatever. Uh, but they did not care for the possibility that some Jewish people 
and that some resistance fighters might be escaping to freedom. That, uh, that didn't make Hitler happy. Rumors of Flytalks' fake purpose would soon lead them to Petio. But first, in December of 1942, Petio would get in more trouble for theft. Almost. The slippery bastard will get suspected in some more theft. He isn't just killing people he's tricked into thinking he's uh, you know, some sort of guardian angel to make money. No, he's got other scams. Dude is still getting disability checks. Oh my God, still getting the government uh, you know, to pay for doctor's appointments he's also charging patients for. And he's using that death, death certificate authority he has for financial gain. Once when he summons, uh, summoned to pronounce the death of a wealthy lawyer at the end of 1942, when he's about to turn 46, he likely steals 74,000 francs from the dead man's home. That's what he gets accused of anyway. While he doesn't get caught for that, he will get arrested by the Germans six months later. By April of 1843, German Gestapo agents, Nazi secret police, you know, they've heard all about Petio's fly talks route. They assumed it really was part of the French resistance. If they would have known what he was really up to, they probably would have just let him keep doing it. You know, just maybe force him to share the loot. Just be like, good job, dude. You're, you're like a volunteer Nazi. We love you, bud. Making Hitler proud. Uh, Petio had gotten more brazen with his advertising recently and a Gestapo informant named Charles Beretta heard about it, infiltrated his operation, fed names to the Gestapo, to the Gestapo. Previously, another Gestapo agent, Robert Jodkum, uh, he, he had forced a French Jewish prisoner named uh, Ivan Dreyfus to approach the supposed network and then, you know, Dreyfus vanished. Likely, of course, killed by Petio. Likely that, you know, Bob fed Dreyfus to a fucking lion. In May of 1943, Nazis arrest Petio's fly talks accomplices, Raoul Fourier, Edmund Pintar, and René Gustave Nezonde. And then they are tortured until they identify uh, Marcel Petio as Dr. Eugene. So Petio is then quickly apprehended by German authorities, joins the others in a prison at Fresnes. This prison has been there since 1895, still there today, France's second largest prison. Fresnes is a suburb of Paris, and it seems like it's very nice. It has a Domino's pizza, a Burger King, and a McDonald's. The holy trifecta, as we now know, of French cuisine and culture, as I've established. Although the Nazis searched his primary home and other property, they somehow missed the Charnel house on Rue Les Suer, his murder house. Petio would spend a total of eight months in prison and be tortured repeatedly by the Germans, and he would bravely refuse to betray other members of the French resistance. That's what he'd later claim. Very likely, he didn't fucking know who they were. He didn't have any names to give up. Uh, the Nazis released Petio and his primary accomplices early January 1944. Months of torture and confinement provide Petio with his best cover yet. He really does look like a resistance fighter now. Uh, once he gets out, this greedy fuck, you know, of course, gets right back to killing. Like a lot of serial killers, he soon gets sloppy, finally gets himself caught. He kills too many people too quick. In his murder mansion, uh, it's too full of bodies, too many to dispose of secretly or quietly. March 6, 1944, Monday, a nasty smelling smoke starts to pour out of the chimney of Petio's murder mansion. And then it just keeps pouring out for almost a week, just nonstop. Dude is just continually roasting human bodies. Like he's working at a fucking barbecue place. Like it's no big deal. March 11th, a weird barbecue place, obviously. <laughs> obviously, I know the barbecue places don't just, you know, constantly roast humans. March 11th, 1944, Petio's neighbors finally complained to French police about the foul stench in the area coming from large amounts of smoke billing out of his chimney. A pair of officers arrive on bicycles to inspect it. Fuck yeah, they do. I love that they roll up on their bikes. No offense to any officers on bike patrol, but, you know, I know your guns have the same bullets as other officers' firearms, but uh, you're... You're not nearly as intimidating. You're more intimidating than an officer on a Segway, but way less than an officer in a car. When no one answers the door of the murder mansion, neighbors inform the bike cops that the owner of the house, Dr. Marcel Petio, maintained a separate residence two miles away at 66 Rue de Carmontan. 
Questioning the neighbors further, they tell officers about a mysterious cavalcade of guests showing up at all hours to Dr. Petio's empty house during the past six months, including recent nightly visits from a stranger with a horse cart. A neighbor reports that some months earlier, two trucks had stopped at the house. The first removed 47 suitcases. That's a very specific number. Clearly, this neighbor was fucking writing shit down. The second delivered 30 to 40 sacks of something unknown. Not suspicious. The officers now telephone a very surprised Dr. Petio at his other uh, Parisian home. He, of course, starts to freak out. He asks the officers whether or not they'd entered the house. When they say no, he pushes his paws on shit in his pants. And he tells them, don't do anything. I'll be there in 50 minutes. And then he, I don't know, maybe takes his butthole suction device and tosses it aside. Half hour later, with the smoke worsening, still no sign of Petio, the bicycle patrolman called for some firefighters. Where the hell is Dr. Petio? Well, he's, he's coming. He's just, he's running a bit late. He's, uh, he's still getting a, uh, this is how I get out of this story straight. They'll hear soon. Enter through a second story window. Some firemen arrive before Petio. They start searching the upper floors before entering the basement, main floor of the house. Uh, when they emerge out the front door a few minutes later, one of them is visibly sick. He starts vomiting. The chief comes out then and tells the police, you have some work ahead of you. Three officers now enter the home. Once inside, they head downstairs to the basement where a coal-fed stove is found burning full blast, bloody human arm dangling from its open door. They look around and they see what could be the set of like a zombie flick or something out of a Saw movie. Nearby, a heap of coal is mixed with human bones and fragments of several dismembered bodies. Enough body parts are found to account for at least 10 victims, but impossible for them to know the count at the time. And how many had been burned over the previous five days? How many had been carted out in those suitcases? Stunned, the police left the basement at the time uh, Dr. Petio arrives now on his bicycle. And then, you know, Petio remarks, this is serious. My head could be at stake. He's got his cover story all put together. He questions the officers. He questions them with, with the intent, intent to find out if they are French police or German. After figuring out they're French, Petio identifies the bodies as German traitors to our country. I'm sure if they were French uh, or German, he would have said like French, you know, traitors. Uh, Petio then claimed to be the head of a resistance group with 300 files at his other home on Rue de uh, Cramontan, which must be destroyed before the enemy finds them. We don't want to get these 300 resistance fighters killed. The French policemen who've been terrorized for years by Nazi occupation, they buy this story and they just simply allow Petio to ride off on his bike to go destroy these files that don't exist for a, res for a resistance uh, army he's affiliated with that he's not affiliated with. Man, this motherfucker knew how to take advantage of chaotic times. He's such a piece of shit, so evil, but also he is so good at being bad. He's very good at crime. He's had a lot of practice running very effective scams. He's smart. He never cracks under pressure. He's always got a story. He has a great sense of how to manipulate any given situation to his advantage. And he clearly has zero empathy, no conscience whatsoever. So helpful to truly be a sociopath. Uh, you know, if you want to have a long run as the serial killer, also helpful to be fucking evil wizard genius. Petio now disappears. He will vanish for seven months, roughly. And man, is his story going to get more interesting. Meanwhile, after he literally rides off on his bike, investigators search Dr. Satan's murder house. In his garage, police find a large heap of quicklime mixed with human remains, including a recognizable scalp and jawbone. A pit had been dug in the stable filled with more quicklime, numerous corpses in various stages of decomposition. It was like a whole murder factory he has here. On the staircase leading from the courtyard to the basement, police find a canvas sack containing the headless left half of a corpse, almost complete except for a foot and vital organs. Holy shit. This really, this really is like a fucking horror movie set. I usually don't care. What has happened in some house or apartment before me if I'm living there? Like if someone died in the house, ah, I wouldn't care and be worried about it being haunted. If someone, you know, singular, one person was murdered, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry that much. 
mean, sometimes I'd worry, but I think I could still live there. But if this had happened before, no, hard, hard no, no, thank you. Even if it's my dream home, I'm going to pass because I would think about this kind of stuff all the time and just completely freak myself out even if I never saw a ghost. Uh, also scattered throughout Petio's property are suitcases, clothing, all sorts of various items from his victims. Commissar uh, Georges Victor Massou, a 33-year-old police veteran with more than 3,200 arrests to his credit, he immediately takes charge of the investigation. Coming over and examining the murder, murder house the first night, he notes that the basement sinks large enough to drain the blood out of a corpse. Excuse me. Also notes a soundproof octagonal chamber with wall-mounted shackles and a peephole centered in its door. What the fuck? If he's poisoning people under the guise of a vaccine shot, how how weirdly relevant uh, for that fear today, by the way, for a lot of people. Uh, if they're dying quickly after the shot, what is this room for? Doesn't seem like everyone was quietly poisoned, does it? I wonder if some people were tortured into revealing where more of their money was or if just, you know, other things were going on. It seems as if other things may have been going on. We'll get to that later. Ah, that's such a disturbing detail. Uh, Commissaire Masu, a.k.a. The Commish, still on the scene. 1.30 a.m. the following morning when a telegram arrives from Paris police headquarters. It reads, order from German authorities, arrest Petio, dangerous lunatic. And now in most cases, this would be enough to rush over and detain the son of a bitch. But because it came from the Germans, it made them think that Petio, maybe he really was a hero. To the French patriots working the crime scene, this was almost a, a declaration of Petio's innocence and his involvement in the resistance. Right? Because of this, the police take their sweet-ass time getting over to his other apartment. And when they finally arrive, it was abandoned with no trace of Petio or his family. And with the idea almost solidified that he was indeed a French resistance hero, they do not continue to search for him. Instead, they interview workmen who had remodeled the house when they uh, found where they found all the bodies. Investigators learned that Petio had been tortured uh, as we went over you know, earlier during his imprisonment by the Gestapo from May 1943 to January 1944 as what would happen, you know, that would happen to a resistance hero this makes finding him just about their lowest priority. They're fucking loving this dude right now. They thought he was killing Nazis left and right and just burying them in his fuck you, Hitler, I love France mansion. And he did kill so many people. Just not who they thought it for. His investigators continued to search through the uh, 21 Rue Les Sur over the following weeks. They start to realize their initial estimate of 10 bodies was far too low. Chief Coroner, Albert Paul. Uh, he tells reporters that number 10 is vastly inferior to the real one. In addition to identifiable bones and body parts of at least 10 folks, Dr. Paul, Dr. Paul, excuse me, cataloged 33 pounds of charred bones, 24 pounds of unburned fragments, 11 pounds of human hair, including more than 10 entire scalps, yeah, and three garbage cans full of pieces too small to identify. I'm picturing big garbage cans too. That's just so disturbing. Based on the uh, substantial pieces, Paul said the oldest victim he could identify was a 50-year-old man, the youngest a 25-year-old woman. None that he could find bore any knife or gunshot wounds, nor had they been poisoned with a toxic metal, but organic poisons, you know, like cyanide, could not be ruled out from samples in hand. Uh, at Petio's apartment on the Rue de Carmontan, police find quantities of chloroform, uh, strychnine, other poisons, plus 50 times a typical physician's stock of heroin and morphine. Old Dr. Satan, he had a lot of shady shit lying around. The commission now starts to wonder, was this dude really a resistance hero? You know, his gut's feeling like, ah, I don't know about this. They start to dig into him a bit more, further reviewing the doctor's background. Investigators are able to identify two of the victims from the murder house. One was Jean-Marc Van Bever, a Paris drug addict, who 
who procured his narcotics from Dr. Petio until Jan- or February 1942 when Van Bever uh, was jailed in the crackdown of pharmacies trading in illicit drugs. Upon his arrest, Van Bever uh, admitted buying fraudulent prescriptions from Petio, then vanished days before his March 1942 trial. Police thought he was killed by some underworld assholes, but the Petio murder house now obviously changed their minds. Why would a resistance fighter kill a French narcotics addict? Another victim identified as Martha Kate, uh, mother of another addict, Ramonde Baudet, who also bargained with Petio for her poison of choice. Now, this is not the Ramonde I mentioned earlier, by the way. Not the girl who OD'd during a surgery on a mouth abscess, whose, whose mother then sued Petio twice. Now, this Ramonde has been jailed in, uh, or excuse me, had been jailed in March 1942, two weeks before Van Bavay disappeared. And Petio had come to uh, Martha Kate, or Kate with an idea to help himself get off the hook. Uh, Mrs. Kate should lie under oath, he suggested, claiming that some of Ramonde's prescriptions written in her mother's surname really belonged to Marte, thereby weakening the prosecution's case against Petio. Kate agreed, but then had to change a heart after consulting her doctor. Petio didn't like that, and then she vanished. Uh, not all of the bodies, the murder house, cle- clearly are part of his flee to Argentina scam. It was uh, also a place just to kill anyone he worried about, anyone who might be able to turn him in to authorities for something or testify against him. You know, maybe those people uh, were the ones who ended up in the torture room. Later, Marte's uh, husband received two letters declaring her intention to leave the country. Uh, the husband then consults Petier, or Petio, uh, who confirms Marte's plans to escape Nazi-occupied France. Maybe she wrote those letters under duress in that fucking torture room. Uh, unconvinced, her husband reports Marte missing on May 7th, 1942. And then no trace of her is found until officers, you know, find the murder mansion. Now the commission and French authorities know this motherfucker was not just some resistance fighter. He was, at the very least, not just murdering Nazis. He was murdering innocent fellow French citizens uh, French citizens as well. Uh, news of a serial killer and a macabre murder house now makes its way to the press. The media reaction, of course, intense. The story is covered not just extensively in France, but also in Switzerland, Belgium, and Scandinavia. So where's Dr. Satan? Uh, during his seven months in hiding, Petio hid with friends and some patients, claiming the Gestapo wanted him because he had killed so many Germans so many German informers. He was such a badass Nazi hunter. He was a hero. He was a hero on the run. Perfect time, obviously, for a story like that. He eventually moved in with the patient, uh, Georges uh, Redoubt. There he lets his beard grow and adopts various, various aliases, excuse me. While living with Redoubt, uh, Petio ventures out only at night, sometimes returning with weapons claimed to have been captured from Nazi patrols. Where did he really get them? Eh, not sure. Maybe he did kill some Nazis. Feels like he was just trying to build up that resistance hero narrative uh, now more. Backing up a bit now to March 13th, 1944, uh, when the search for Petio began, his wife and son were found, questioned in Paris, along with his brother Maurice. He'd left them to go on the run, you know, hide out. Georgette said that they, uh, she had barely set foot in her husband's nearly uh, $500,000 franc home and that she didn't know all of his business. She also bragged about his talent for renovation, particularly his talent with woodworking and sculpting. He was getting the place nice. Hard to say if Georgette knew anything about her husband's crimes. As we know, you know, going over the life and crimes of so many serial killers, uh, many of these guys are masters of compartmentalization. And Petio was clearly so intelligent. I'm sure he could have fooled a lot of people and she possibly truly had no idea what he was up to. If she did know, she was a great actress. I found a pic online of her fainting during a cross-examination of her husband at his later trial and she had to be carried out of the courtroom. A little bro... Uh, Maurice Petio now gets interrogated by the commish. Maurice told him uh, he and his brother drifted apart in the early 1930s. After Maurice married his wife in September of 1934, the brothers didn't speak for five years over some incident where a kleptomaniac, Marcel, of course, stole some of Maurice's shit. I'll buy it. 
They had been mending their relationship in recent years, having lunch or dinner you know, with Marcel's family in Paris every two weeks or so. When asked about his brother's murder mansion, he said, I have never known which street the private mansion was on. I've never been there, but he was lying. When pressed, he admitted, there to, uh, admitted to being there at least four times. He said that in July or August of 1943, he'd applied anti-mite treatment on some bug-infested furniture and rugs. A few months later, maybe December 1943, he'd gone to shut off the water in case of an accident with a you know, sudden arrival of cold weather. January of 1944, he brought an architect to look at some possible leaks that might be causing humidity problems in a neighboring building. And then, not the skilled liar his brother was, Maurice confesses to going there at least one more time. He delivered some quicklime to 21 Rue Lesseur acting on Marcel's orders. And now he's charged with conspiracy to commit murder and jailed March 17th, 1944. Poor bastard. Did he really know what his brother was doing? Or did Marcel convince baby bro he was killing Nazis? It seems he may have known. More evidence will come out against him at his brother's trial, revealing that he probably not only knew about the murders, but also helped cover them up and made money off all of it. A few days later, March, uh, you know, a few days later, uh, March um, 17th. So I guess he yeah, had the same day that he's jailed. Sorry, not a few days later, a few days from a previous thing, but the same day he was jailed. Petio's longtime buddy, uh, Rene Gustave uh, Nizonde is arrested. A friend of Nazonde's is picked up also on the 17th. His name, big day here, uh, Roland Pochon, and he admits referring clients to Nazonde and Petio. Back in July of 1942, Pochon had told some detectives that Nazonde had described Petio as the king of the criminals, claiming that he had seen 16 corpses stretched out in the basement of the murder mansion. A second witness called Nazonde's admission, uh, or recalled, excuse me, a second witness recalled Nazonde's admission that he had helped Petio hide some of the bodies. Uh, I'm sure for a cut of some of the money. Nizande, for his part, initially denied the charges, but then did confess five days later on the 22nd. He had a different chronology for the story, though, claiming that he first learned of the slaughter at the murder mansion, November or December, 1943, when Petio was in Gestapo custody. Besides the corpses, he claimed he'd also seen a diary, now missing, which listed the names of 50 or 60 victims. Six others were soon arrested in the Petio manhunt, including a barber who referred clients to Petio from his shop on Rue de uh, Maturins, and Albert and Simone Newhausen, who uh, were held for receiving stolen property after they confessed that they helped remove suitcases from 21 Rue Lesueur. So many people, so many people involved in this horror show. Uh, most of the subjects, most of the suspects were released in April of 1944, though Nazonde would remain in custody for 14 months. Marcel Petio, still a fugitive, June 6, 1944, when Allied troops invade France and the investigation grinds to a temporary halt. And here, our story takes yet another strange twist. Oh, man. This is, uh, check this shit out. During the liberation of Paris in 1944, Petio adopts the name, the alias, Henri or Henri uh, uh, Valéry. And he joins the French Forces of the Interior, FFI, in an uprising against the Nazis. Now, he legitimately is in a French resistance group. How is this story not some super fucked up movie? Uh, and then Petio shows great skill at the job and sees many quick promotions. The dude who probably shot himself in the foot and faked or at least exaggerated mental illness during the last, you know, big war, his last military stint, the guy currently suspected of being a serial killer, now at 47 years old, he becomes a captain in charge of counter-espionage and prisoner interrogations at uh, Rouly, or excuse me, in the Rouly district of Paris, also described as the 12th district or 12th borough of Paris. Pretty bougie district, by the way, too. Uh, it only has one Domino's pizza. But there are several others just outside of it, and it has five Burger Kings and seven McDonald's. So clearly, it's one of the nicest neighborhoods in all of France. 
Uh, you know that I have to carry this gag all the way to the end, right? Uh, after the liberation, France is a fucking mess. How could it not be? The dark years of the occupation to turn neighbors against neighbors. Now the first priority of a post-war reckoning is to remove Nazi collaborators from positions of power. And all this chaos, you know, he's able to get this alias going and advance in this resistance group. You know, this, uh, this looks civil in some aspects to the world, all this uh, revenge, this reckoning as they use the courts to charge enemies with treason. But, you know, this reckoning also took the form of lynchings, you know, just random executions, a wide range of vig- vigilante actions. It was a dark and angry and confusing time following a dark and fearful and confusing time. Uh, even women who were accused of doing nothing more than sleeping with the German, known as horizontal collaboration, they were punished harshly by these mobs in the war's aftermath. Even if these women didn't have much of a choice when it came to sleep with Germans, you know, how fucked up for them. An estimated 10 to 20,000 women would have their heads shaved publicly, be stripped naked or semi-naked, forced to march through the streets, sometimes with swastikas tarred or even fucking tattooed onto their breasts, sometimes wearing signs around their necks declaring, I hoard with the Germans. Europe in the 1940s. Fuck. So much horror. Out of 350,000 people charged with helping the enemy, about 60% of the cases will be dismissed for lack of evidence. Around 20% or almost 26,000 people did end up with prison sentences. Around 13,000 sent to do hard labor. And officially, over 7,000 received death sentences. But the vast majority of these cases not followed through with. While many were exuberant about purging France of traitors, others did urge caution, appealed for reconciliation, and not revenge as the road to reunite France. Uh, Captain Henri Valeri, a.k.a. Dr. Petio, not one of the people urging mercy. Oh, no, of course not. He was urging his men, and yes, he is in charge of men whose job it is to punish French traitors. God, he urges them to show no mercy. He said that France was using eyebrow tweezers when the proper instrument should be a shovel. In September 1944, Petio's insatiable greed almost gets his cover blown. Dude had zero interest in laying low and living a quiet life or leaving France to go pull his shit somewhere else. If he would have done that, he probably would have just, you know, well, I don't want to spoil anything. Anyway, inside, instead, that September, two FFI soldiers from Petio's unit robbed the elderly mayor of uh, Tessincourt, a small town of around 1,000 just northwest of Paris. They steal 12.5 million francs in cash, uh, collectible stamps, jewelry from the home before killing their victim in front of witnesses. And this town, this town's a fucking shithole, by the way. No Domino's Pizza, no Burger King, no Mickey D's. Skip it. You get it. Three youths. Witnesses report this murder and robbery to Petio, who surprises the shit out of them when he promptly tosses them in jail for reporting it. An FFI lieutenant then tries to investigate. This seems fishy. He's ordered off the case by, you know, Captain Valeri, a.k.a. Petio. The bandits' murderers are then caught and detained, but then very quickly released after probably telling Petio where the loot was. And then, so weird, they vanish. And the money's never recovered. That's odd. Probably uh, Petio killed them and took the loot. Sounds right. By now, a lot of people, including a lot of investigators, think that Petio has either fled the country or is dead. And if now he would have just laid low and lived off all the money he's just stolen, he probably could have started a new life right in, you know, Paris, but he felt like he was invincible. He could get away with anything. So when the French newspaper Resistance publishes an article about Petio accusing him of being a disgusting serial killer, he just can't shut the fuck up. He mouths off. His defense attorney from the 1942 narcotics case receives a letter in which his fugitive client claims that the published allegations are lies. They are all lies. He writes in the third person, having lost everything except his life. He, as in, you know, Petio, obviously, is risking even that under a false name, scarcely hoping that tongues and pens now freed from their shackles will tell the truth so easy to guess and forget the, cl- the clumsy kraut lies 
that require only two sous of French common sense to see through. Dude still thinks his bullshit story about being a French hero will sell. After everything he's done, he thinks he can go back to scamming, probably murdering, being rich, being free in Paris with his wife and son. Understandably, the police, the French police, they're fucking thrilled by this response. Not only does this letter confirm that Petio is still alive, it also provides clues to his whereabouts. Petio, in rushing to defend himself, had helped him far more than he knew. His arrogance led him to make some mistakes, right? In addition to admitting his identity as Dr. Eugene, Petio had volunteered. He was, in fact, working in the resistance under a different name. He provided them with no less than eight pages of his handwriting to discover his alias in this big letter. He had not bothered to type his response or ask his lawyer to type it. And the envelope's postmark showed that the letter had been mailed from Paris. The speed of Petio's rebuttal suggested he's probably still in the city. The search begins again. And now check out another ridiculous story twist. Maybe the weirdest one so far. Maybe the weirdest one of all. I don't know how, I don't know how this one could be topped. Numerous FFI officers are now assigned to help the French police find Marcel Petio, a.k.a. Dr. Satan. One of the officers assigned <laughs> to try and find him is Captain Henri Valeri. The story is so ridiculous. He has been assigned to fucking hunt himself down. Police and officers like Valeri, a.k.a. Petio, are told that Petio would probably be working as a doctor. So the search focuses on physicians of the resistance, right? Finally, after all this, October 31st, 1944, Halloween night. So perfect for a Halloween week episode. Dr. Satan, a.k.a. Marcel Petio, a.k.a. Captain Henri Valeri, is recognized thanks to newspaper coverage. He's recognized at a Paris metro station, right? The subway. The saint mande Tourelle, where there was a Domino's Pizza no more than 300 feet from the station. For realsies. It's a nice station. Uh, but not the other two. Anyway, 10.45 p.m., Halloween night, as he punches his metro ticket, a stranger walks up to him, asks him his name. Uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, ask him for the time, not his name. Forget, forget, forget what I said about name. <laughs> ask him for the time. Then with Petio distracted, you know, getting his pocket watch out, look at his time. The stranger literally kicks him in the fucking nuts. Then the three other men that are with the stranger jump on Petio, hail Nimrod. <laughs> uh, some police officers nearby quickly respond. Petio is carried out of the railway station, a few minutes later, blindfolded, gagged, his hands cuffed, his feet bound. After seven months, 20 days, eluding arrest, after years of murder, after fucking a lifetime of getting away with shit, he's finally been really captured. Among his possessions are a loaded 635 revolver, 31,700 francs, 50 sets of identity documents with six different names. The arresting officer, Captain Simonian, uh, does not immediately take Petio to the proper police precinct for questions. Instead, he questions him himself. He reports that Petio took a condescending tone towards him, said he was a hero of the resistance and blasted the officer as a hireling of the capitalists and mercenaries in the service of the Americans. Uh, after this unofficial interrogation, Captain Somonian hands Petio over to the police, the proper police, to detain him. Then the following day, Simonian himself is brought before an official purge tribunal uh, that examines cases of suspected German collaboration. After a five-minute hearing, he's found guilty of being a collaborator. He's fired from his position and then he disappears to avoid imprisonment. Years later, when he reemerges, he says he was convinced that his punishment had come from a certain faction that sought revenge for his arrest of Marcel Petio. There was people that did not want him arrested because there are people who thinks he, he think he really is a resistance hero, that he only killed Nazis in his murder mansion. He had fans. Now in custody, most local media do not have a field day with this story, surprisingly, uh, because his arrest is very embarrassing to the resistance and to the French law enforcement. You know, Captain Henri Valéry was out there hunting, hunting for himself, right under the noses of French authorities, right when France is trying to rebuild, rebuild some national morale. 
Uh, Albert Camus, a noted French philosopher and journalist who owned a paper called Combat, explained his reluctance to cover the monster's tale. We believe we have fulfilled our journalistic obligations by relaying the news without commentary. We will do the same each day, but we refuse to glorify an affair which is repugnant for so many from so many points of view. Such a crazy time to be French. Uh, the commish, uh, Georges-Victor Massoud, the man in charge of Petio's investigation, he is not able to initially interrogate Petio because he's in jail when Petio gets arrested. He'd been charged with collaborating with the Germans too, with collaborating with the enemy during Petio's investigation for following Gestapo orders as, as far as how to handle the investigation, as if he had a choice. It's just fucking chaos. He was so upset by those charges, he slit his wrists in a non-fatal suicide attempt. Then later, luckily he's cleared of all charges due to lack of evidence. And then he would serve out the rest of his police force career with distinction. Thanks, uh, things thankfully settled the fuck down after a brief post-occupation period of insanity in France. Uh, Petio is now imprisoned in La Santé prison in the 14th district of Paris and is housed on death row. He continues to claim he's innocent. He killed only enemies of France. Uh, today, this prison is not near Burger King or Domino's Pizza, but it is about a thousand feet from McDonald's. So it's not in a great neighborhood, but it could be worse. Maybe better back then. Uh, now held on death row on suspicion of committing multiple murders, Petio uh, says he had discovered the pile of bodies in 21 Rue Lesueur in February 1944 after his stint in prison where he was tortured by the Gestapo. And he assumed, you know, that they were Nazi collaborators killed by members of his Fly Talks network. Uh-huh. He didn't kill those people. He, he found them. Listen, sometimes when you're stuck in jail for a while, you come home to a pile of bodies. You know how it is. Still thinking of Danny McBride. Look, bro, no one's more fucking pissed than me. I got tortured by Nazis, right? And someone used my fucking house for body disposal while I'm gone. I don't see a diamond rent for that shit, so fuck that noise. Now I'm arrested? Ha, <laughs> shit. I'm a patriot, bro. I was out there inventing secret weapons and shit. Well, you were sucking Nazi dick trying to keep your fucking desk job. So fuck you. No offense. Uh, Petio said that he uh, then asked his brother Maurice for quicklime to dissolve these mystery bodies and to camouflage their or, or uh, camouflage their odor. He certainly didn't kill those people. Even if he, even if he would have, you know, they would have been Germans because he was gosh dang resistance fighter. Come on. While his claims are investigated, the police find that Petio uh, has no friends in any of the major resistance groups. Not before his days of being Captain Henri Valéry. And Petio fucked up by claiming to be in resistance groups that never existed. Seems like whenever he does something kind of nice, he just, he can't like rein it in. He just takes it too far. Prosecutors eventually charge him with at least 27 murders for profit. They suspect him of committing many more than that. They estimate uh, his gains ran to 200 million francs, plus who knows how much gold and jewels that were never recovered. While under pre-trial questioning, Petio makes this statement. My conscience does not reproach me in the least. I am proud of what I did as a patriot. If I had not obeyed all civil laws, or if I have not obeyed all civil laws, I have obeyed the laws of war. Otherwise, the occupation imposed certain precautions on me. Among my comrades in combat, 50 knew my true identity. It required only one of 50 to denounce me, and one did. So he's saying, you know, he got screwed by some traitor, and he's really a hero, really sticking to the story. I bet he thought he could still get away with all this. The guy never lacked confidence. You know, he got out of being punished so many times before. Uh, pre-trial questioning would last a full 14 months. While in prison, he seemed to have a pretty good time, actually. He wrote poetry, doodled, read a bunch. Worked on a book. I'll talk about that later. He sewed, knitted, embroidered, smoked so heavily. He got the nickname of a cigarette butt. It's not very, not very creative. I prefer Dr. Satan. Uh, while when one prisoner shared some cigarettes with him, he thanked him by sharing some lines of his poetry. The poem ended with these lines. 
It would be marvelous to see a town in arms, crying, get the bastards, or, without the least alarm, sacking the palace of justice. But more than that, skinning this one and then that one, so that it would be beautiful to see them die a slow death, and to see for ten years ten skins of judges put up for sale. Right, because he's being screwed by the justice system. Upon hearing this poem, another prisoner across the hall suggested that it wasn't the judges that should be skinned, it was Petio. He screamed that Petio would be carved up and slices like a sausage. So clearly, some of his fellow prisoners did not buy his, uh, but, I'm a, but I'm a hero, bullshit. Petio never had uh, much contact with uh, many other prisoners. His old buddy, Nizonde, held in a different cell as an alleged comp- accomplice. He would, you know, have contact with him. This guy claims to have bribed guards so he could speak with Petio on walks in the garden. He said, I never saw the least emotion on his face. He gave the impression that he could not care less what happened to him. Authorities, while he sits locked up, continue trying to determine the identities of his, le- of his alleged victims. On November 10th, 1944, any person who had a member of their family or, fr- or a friend disappear between Jan- January 1st, 1942 and March 11th, 1944 in Paris was invited to look through a collection of clothing, household goods, and other personal items believed to have belonged to Petio's victims. Of the belongings that were brought in court, uh, there were 53 suitcases plus three blouses, 13 dresses, 14 nightgowns, 16 girdles, and 24 pairs of panties. Investigators and various members of the media believed he had been overtly sexual with many of his victims, which is a coy way of saying he raped and sexually tortured them. As nearly all of them were found naked, and there was that whole soundproof octagonal chamber with wall-mounted shackles and a peephole centered on uh, in his door. Hard not to think of that as a torture room. There was also speculation that he tortured many of them while wearing some sort of frightening mask, which is random and terrifying. Real good chance he wasn't doing uh, all this just for the money. Uh, December of 1942, uh, 1944, excuse me, two of Petio's accomplices, Lafont and Bonnie, as they're described, as well as five of their men, found guilty of helping him do all this, executed by firing squad uh, on December 27th. Upon hearing the news, Petio said sarcastically that these traitors had been honorably executed while he was going to be sent to the guillotine for doing the same thing as the French justice system, punishing traitors. He's a war hero, come on. Petio then goes on trial March 18th, 1946 at the Palace of Justice. He stood in front of three judges and a seven-man jury while facing 135 criminal charges. Rene Florio, rising legal star, and the man who'd already defended Petio in two past narcotics cases, acted for the defense against a team comprising of state prosecutors and 12 civil lawyers hired by relatives of Petio's victims. Petio took his own defense seriously. He uh, taunted prosecuting lawyers often. You can find some pretty intense trial photos where it looks like he's screaming at them in court. He denounced the uh, Kate family's lawyer as a double agent and a defender of Jews, while noting that victim Joseph uh, Rucroy was easy to spot as a collaborator. He said he had a head like a pimp, you know, like a police inspector. What the fuck is he talking about here? Didn't he stick to pretending he was only killing people he thought were Nazis and not saying anti-Semitic and anti-law enforcement shit? He's just so mad he's been caught. He claimed that other victims had been collaborators or double agents or that vanished people were alive and well in South America under new names, that he really was helping them. He insisted that victim uh, Yahim uh, Gushnov was alive and well. When asked why he couldn't be found, Petio smirked, South America's a big place. Rebuked at one point by Chief Judge Michael Lesser for doodling in court, Petio retorted, I am listening, but it doesn't really interest me that much. Another McBride moment. South America's a big place, dickweed. Buy a fucking globe already. Learn some shit, bro. Yeah, I am doodling. Fucking bored, dude. You guys are hella boring. Is this this a murder trial or some kind of weak-ass writer's room for lame-ass bedtime stories? Fuck you guys. No offense. Uh, When they asked him about his alleged secret weapon, 
that he developed, he simply said his interrogators were too uncultivated in scientific matters to be able to understand what he was talking about. Love it. Look, I can try and explain it to you dickweeds, but I will not. It'd be like trying to teach fucking monkeys how to fly planes or some shit. Uh, he also reaffirmed that he did kill 63 people, but most of them weren't the ones found in his house. They were Nazis. He buried them out in the forest. Uh, besides the French resistance hero defense, his attorney also tried to use that old gym that had gotten Petio out of trouble so many times before. He's crazy. Could he get off because of insanity again? How pissed are you going to be if after all this, he walks free? After the trial's second day on March 19th, 1946, reporters overhear two jurors and, a, and Judge Lesser discussing Petio in private, referring to him as a demon and an appalling murderer. Attorney Florio immediately seeks a mistrial. Mistrial. But the appellate court rejects the motion. The trial resumes after the two offending jurors are replaced. On the trial's fifth day, judges and jurors visit 21 Rue Les Soeurs, the murder house. So does Petio. As he passes by a crowd of people yelling French curse words at him, he apparently casually says, Peculiar homecoming, don't you think? He now admits to killing 19 of the 27 victims found in his house. Says he's proud of it. He says they're part of the 63 German heads he collected. The other eight people found in his house, I don't know. These are people who are identified as being French people. Those bodies were fucking, you know, probably dumped there by the Nazis. Why don't you understand, jury? It's a house of many bodies. Sometimes I'm not there. The Nazis will sneak over. and They throw some bodies in there. Sometimes when I'm there, I throw some Nazi bodies in there. Come on. It's easy to figure out if you think about it. Uh, incredibly, defense attorney Rene Florio's summation hailing Petio as a hero of the resistance wins a standing ovation from the courtroom audience on the last day of the trial. He gets a fucking standing O. Uh, some people still love this dude. Judges and jurors, luckily, not uh, nearly as impressed. After deliberating for just three hours, a mere 90 seconds for each of the 135 criminal charges, the court convicts Petio on all but nine counts. So he gets convicted of 126 criminal charges. He's acquitted of killing just one person, uh, Nellie Denise Houghton, but found guilty of 26 other premeditated murders and of so much more and sentenced to have his head removed from his body via guillotine. And now he finally stops receiving those disability payments. <laughs> payments that had gone to his wife and kid once he'd been put in jail. I shit you not. Either he or his wife have been getting those fucking payments the whole time since July of 1919. Damn near 27 years. 27 years. When he was obviously very capable of working. Uh, strangely, Petio doesn't seem phased by the guilty verdict. He thinks he's going to win an appeal. His attorney, Florio, does appeal the conviction, uh, you know, citing two complaints. First, he maintains that a mistrial should have been granted after Judge Lesser and two jurors publicly declared their belief in Petio's guilt. Also, Florio asserts that one of the witnesses, Marguerite Braunberger and her maid, they're perjurers, but he loses his appeal. And Petio's death sentence is affirmed just a few weeks later. The appeals process, man, it was fast back then. And the death row process, super fast. Two months after being convicted, it's the day before he's to be executed, the day before the guillotine. He seems calm at the thought of his death, smiling as he asks his guards, when are they going to assassinate me? Right, because he's, he's a martyr. He's a resistance hero martyr. He refuses to see a priest on the day of his execution, preferring, as he said, to take his baggage with him. Uh, 3.30 a.m., May 25th, 1946, the portable guillotine has been delivered to the prison, assembled. It's ready to lop this dipshit's head off. An hour later, uh, summoned from his cell, Petio refuses the traditional glass of rum. He wants to be sober for his final moments, but he does accept a cigarette. He also agrees not to meet with the priest, but agrees to meet with the prison chaplain for his wife's sake. Some Protestant minister, uh, and I guess he just tells him, I'm not a religious man and my conscience is clean. A man named Dr. Albert Paul, among the witnesses present, uh, speaks now of how Dr. Satan carried himself in his final minutes. 
He noted that Petio moved with ease as though he were walking into his office for a routine appointment. This dude was unfucking flappable Evil. Uh, the king of criminals. Uh, before he was strapped to the guillotine, Petio apparently calmly warmed observers saying, gentlemen, I ask you not to look. This will not be very pretty. Then moments later, the blade is dropped. 5.05 a.m. And of course, this final detail would be present in this insane story. Uh, according to multiple witnesses, Petio is seen smiling, his fucking decapitated head as it tumbles into the basket, big shit-eating grin on its face. They killed him, but they didn't break him. He was 49. He was buried in Ivry Cemetery in Paris in an unmarked grave that was later removed in the 1990s. And there is, I shit you not, a Domino's pizza less than 200 feet from that cemetery and a couple Burger Kings and a couple McDonald's within a mile. It was a top shelf cemetery. The location of Petio's remains now are unknown. Uh, I hope they're not near Domino's pizza, Burger King or McDonald's. You get it. Let's get out of here. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. I don't know about you, but I've never heard a story like that before. What a unique tale. Man, Marcel Petio, sometimes uh, called the Mad Butcher, also called Dr. Satan, may have killed between 50 to 60 people, likely uh, killed at least that many, could have killed so many more. Who the fuck knows? He was an evil, sneaky weasel. We'll never know. Convicted of killing 26. And he dragged so many others down with him, like like baby bro Maurice. Not sure how long he ended up spending in prison. Uh, He wasn't executed, but he was found guilty of being an accomplice to multiple murders. Uh, his poor wife, Georgette, she would periodically embarrass herself in the in public for many years after her husband's death, telling everyone who would listen, you know, including journalists, that he really was a war hero and that one day she would uncover the truth and she would exonerate his name. And that never happened because the truth was he was an evil fuck who deserved to have his head lopped off. Uh, not sure what happened to their son. He avoided the press. I, I wonder why. Marcel Petio uh, lived a life that was certainly interesting. Started off as an extremely troubled student who once threw knives at a classmate, fired a gun in class. Started off with a crime when he was a kid with the old fish and pole mail theft, little racket when he was 17. Then the kleptomaniac got caught stealing weird shit like blankets in the military during World War I. Uh, Probably was legitimately shell-shocked. By the time he was 22, he ventured into scams, faking or at least greatly exaggerating symptoms of mental illness to get a government disability that supposedly either kept him from working or kept him from holding down a full-time job. Uh, did neither. He milked this scam the rest of his free life, uh, figured out how to double dip with medical patients and the people's doctor did that for years, then bullied his way into the mayor's office where he stole, you know, uh, more, got caught, but didn't really get in trouble. Then weaseled his way into higher office where he stole again, got caught, uh, again, didn't really get in trouble. He sure knew how to work the system. Man, did he ever. He also likely murdered a few people back in his days living in uh, Villeneuve, Soyon. Uh, to cover up, you know, crimes or to prevent, you know, scandals. Then murdered so many more in, in Paris. All the while, he was kleptomaniac in his way to all kinds of other shit. You know, who knows how much he really stole from other people. Then when Germany took over and France, he used the chaos and terror to really go full evil. Created a fake liberation network known as Fly Talks to uh, lure more people to their deaths, take their money. More crimes he got away with. The more times he was let off when he got caught because he was, quote, crazy, the more criminal confidence he had. Once he figured out he could kill seemingly with impunity, he just killed all kinds of people. People who thought uh, they were going to testify against him. People who related to people um, who might testify against him. He killed anyone who got in his way or anyone he could make money off of, it seemed. And he may have sexually tortured many of them as well. Not many details released in that regard. The press not quite as hardcore about gory sexual details back in the 40s like they are now. 
Uh, his code name for his fly talks murder scheme was, you know, Dr. Eugene, but Dr. Satan feels more apt. Uh, some think he may have uh, taken in more than a hundred million francs worth of money and jewels with those fly talks murders. I mean, you know, up to maybe 200 million. You know, if it was 200 million, that'd be $40 million uh, in, in today's money, US dollars. Uh, sorry, it'd be 80 million if it was, you know, 240, if it was a hundred, uh, I said that wrong. And yeah, what a fucking crazy story full of so many twists and turns. Uh, Petiot lied, told many he was part of the French resistance, claimed he fought valiantly against the Nazis. Then he was captured and tortured by the Gestapo and in prison for eight months. Uh, then after lying about inventing a number of secret weapons, uh, he said one could fire in silence up to a hundred feet, you know, with deadly accuracy. Uh, he really did become part of the French resistance. He became a captain in charge of numerous men tasked with tracking down Nazis and hiding and French traitors. Spent time in mental asylums. Also spent time in asylums studying to become a doctor working there. Ah, when he was supposed to be committed to the asylum as a patient, he also claimed to have created a uh, fucking butthole pump to cure chronic constipation. Even created a perpetual motion machine I didn't mention earlier <laughs> that he claimed to have nearly perfected. He did a lot of different things. A lot of horrible things. A lot of, wow, that was really crazy things. And a lot of, uh, that is so fucked up, but also darkly impressive things. He was crazy. He was a criminal genius in some ways. He was an asshole. Maybe the best scam artist we have covered so far. And I'm glad Marcel Petio, whose life could easily be the basis for a great movie or at least the inspiration for like a Batman villain or something. Glad he was executed. Now let's recap a bit more of what we learned and learn something new in today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Petio was a soldier, a doctor a politician, a fake resistance hero, a real resistance hero, a career criminal, an arsonist, a drug dealer, a mass murderer, maybe a butthole pump inventor. One of the weirdest resumes ever. Number two, Petio thought he was bulletproof partially due to being diagnosed several times as mentally ill. Almost every time he was arrested, the charge would be dropped due to insanity police. He even thought at the very end, after everything he did, after filling a house full of corpses, that if his resistance hero story didn't quite pan out, he could still fall back on that insanity plea. Number three, how the fuck was he allowed to be a doctor after only eight months of training? Did he scam his way into a real medical degree? Even French doctors at the time thought there was no way that Petio could have passed his exams after eight months of schooling. He was a, he was a good scam artist. Number four, France currently has 445 Domino's pizzas, 335 Burger Kings, and 1,485 McDonald's offering the finest in French cuisine. I don't know why that's so funny to me. Number five, new info. Petio wrote a manuscript for a book while waiting to be executed in prison. Uh, it was, of course, a bizarre book. It, was not <laughs> it wasn't exactly a book about scams. It kind of scam adjacent, though. If he would have been freed and been able to sell it, that would have kind of been a scam. And it probably would have made him a ton more money. Petio wrote about how to defeat the odds in games of chance from poker to the lottery, roulette to the races. This book had columns and columns of calculations, astrological symbols, surreal ramblings, and it provides some unique insights into his mind. He, he describes fellow human beings in this book at one point as animated meatballs. <laughs> he really, really did not give a fuck about other people. Uh, he described the world as a concert of bitterness. In one paragraph, he wrote, not a single one of all creation is content with its fate. The stone is sad thinking of the oak that grows in the sun. The oak is sad, thinking of the animals that run in the shade of the forest. The animal is sad, thinking of the eagle that ascends the blue sky. And man is sad because he cannot understand why he has been placed here. And he knows all his imperfections. Uh, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, about this book, he wrote, 
This is a serious book that I'm writing to amuse myself. By reading it seriously, you will amuse yourself and certainly gain something. The research he wrote was undertaken by Dr. Eugene, ex-chief of the resistance group Flytox. He said the columns of numbers in the book were created under the supervision of Captain Valeri and that any errors in the book should be ascribed to Dr. Marcel Petion. <laughs> Jesus Christ. The title of his 360-page book uh, was supposed to be Beating Chance. He believed that chance was just an illusion. He wrote, there is no chance, only probabilities that submit to special laws. All of these probabilities could be discovered with reason and application because, as he put it, there is no effect without cause and all effects result from a certain number of causes, which are often multiple and complicated. But once a person discovers those laws, he or she can control them and apply them with profit. Petio promised to guide the reader through his through uncharted territory, a virgin forest bristling with calculus. This guy was a fucking genius. An evil genius. What a fucking genius. Cold-blooded killer genius. Crazy genius. My mind is spinning. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Dr. Satan has been sucked. I thought this one was going to be interesting. It ended up being far more interesting than I expected. I don't know crazy fake commercials or anything this week. No crazy characters. I just found this story so inherently fascinating all on its own. I uh, just didn't feel like adding anything to, to try and make it more compelling or entertaining. It's, ah, holy shit. Thank you. It, it, it is amazing. Like if you, if, if you told this story, if, if this story was a movie and you didn't say it was based on a true story, I think most people would be like, what the fuck? Get out of here. This would never happen. This is nonsense. But apparently, very true. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help making times like this and every week. Uh, Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, doing so much. Reverend Dr. Joe Pesey, also doing a lot. Thanks to Zach Flannery. He doesn't do fucking anything. No, he does a lot. Uh, the script keeper for tackling the initial research this week. Thanks to Bitelixer for keeping the Time Suck app running smooth. To Logan, the art warlock, Keith, our creative director, creating all the merch and more at badmagicmerch.com. Thanks to Lizzie Enchantress Hernandez, who runs our Cult of the Curious Facebook private page, currently Cult of the Curious 2. Still, we haven't gotten in trouble again. Now, now I probably jinxed it. Along with her wondering, all-seeing eyes moderators. We have so many great moderators. Uh, she helps Logan with socials as well. Thanks to Beefsteaks, still over on Discord, you know, with the Mod Squad, keeping over 10,000 meat sacks happy over there. Uh, next Monday on Time Suck, we will explore another Space Lizard voted in topic. Also fitting for coming out around Halloween, the day after Halloween, the dark history of nursery rhymes. Safe to say that some of the first memories of words strung together by, uh, you know, for many of us, probably from nursery rhymes. Mary had a little lamb, Humpty Dumpty, three blind mice, that one about the baby that was waving a tree for some reason then fell the fuck out. On the surface, nursery rhymes seem to be just simple lyrics for kids to learn how to use the English language a little better. What historians say, several of the most famous nursery rhymes are also laced with political propaganda, violent history, religious persecution, and more, uh, more than a few questionable acts and ideals. Uh, from decapitations and torture to racism and incest. You know, child-friendly stuff. For the suck, we're going to be looking into many of the most common, you know, commonly sung nursery rhymes and their much heavier details. But we won't just be sticking to the English language. For better or worse, the whole world seems to have done this kind of thing to kids. Uh, would you believe me if I told you that Russia has some seriously fucked up nursery rhymes? Of course you would, as you should, because they do. And it's always fun to explore Russia. Uh, join us. For a deep suck into the dark and equally weird as fuck history of nursery rhymes next Monday on Time Suck. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Funny and far-hiking sucker, Craig, a.k.a. Butters, 
has an Oregon Trail-related message to kick things off. Craig writes, free money. Now that I have your attention, greetings, Master Sucker. My name is Craig, and I'm 27 years old from upstate New York. I first discovered Time Suck when I was hiking through the Appalachian Trail, Appalachian, whatever, from Georgia to Maine in 2019. Since then, I listened to every episode and got even got my dad listening while he drives for work. I'm ready for the first time after listening to the episode on the Oregon Trail. This past summer, I hiked from Mexico to Canada on the Continental Divide Trail and crossed the Oregon Trail multiple times. Uh, I wanted to share some comparisons I thought of between my journey and the people who made the voyage in the 1800s. For starters, I was carrying all of my food and supplies on my back over rugged terrain. While I didn't have to worry about cholera, hikers do have to worry about giardia and norovirus that can be contracted with uh, through water sources you drink. The day started the crack of dawn. You're walking all day trying to ration out enough food and supplies to make it to the next town. I was always hoping to run into friendly strangers while approaching roadways so I could go into town and buy more food, wash my clothes, find a place to rest my head for the night. Attached are some pics and videos from passing the Oregon Trail and Lewis and Clark Pass. Anyways, I wanted to take this time to thank you and everybody at the Bad Magic team for providing me with entertainment on both long-distance hikes I have conquered. After doing nothing but hiking for days on end, it's nice to pop in my headphones, distract myself from any aches and pains or tiredness I'm feeling. You saved my boredom on many long 30-mile days or short days where I'm stuck in my tent because of rain, and for that, I can't thank you guys enough. Here's to many more adventures for me that Time Suck will be a part of. Keep on sucking. Butters, my trail name while on the trail, a.k.a. Craig. Well, Craig Butters, thanks for writing in. And congrats on such an epic journey. Two journeys. Man, the full length of the Continental Divide Trail, just so the rest of you meat sacks know, is 1,000 miles longer than the full length of the Oregon Trail. 3,100 miles. Yeah, modern shoes, electrolytes, podcasts, all the new gear, of course. But that's still so impressive. That's a, that's a lot of walking in any age. And a lot of, man, going over mountains. Oh, that's incredible, Craig. I mean, what a cool connection that gave you to the Oregon Trail. Uh, cool, you know, seeing some terrain that looks like it did back in Lewis and Clark's day. Uh, thanks for the pic, video, and man, good on you. Man, you saw some vistas. Uh, now, married meat sack Michael writes in with a shivery update. This is ridiculous. Uh, and Chevy was that, that whole Oregon Trail wedding night hazing we talked about. Here it goes. To he who sucks hardest and deepest, this message is in two parts. Firstly, Chivalry is still alive and well, and well. Just finished the Oregon Trail episode where you mentioned you had never heard of it. If only I were so lucky. I live in Southern Kentucky where Chivalry took a slightly different path. And instead of banging pots and pans to cock block, <laughs> to cock block an newlywed couple, it is now frat level hazing for the groom. <laughs> about a week before my wedding, my older brother and other family members grabbed me, tied me up with plastic wrap, took me to a field. <laughs> this is ridiculous. They then proceeded to pour rotten milk on me, throw flour at me, pelt me with eggs. I cannot describe the stench to you. I had what amounted to rancid pancake batter in every orifice. This was also in December. Jesus. So the milk and egg mixture became a gooey slime. Six showers later, I still stank. <laughs> that is ridiculous. The second part of the email is a Cummins law. Being a relatively newlywed, my wife and I are still discovering things about each other. Thanks to Time Sucks, she discovered that I'm a fucking degenerate. <laughs> Listening to the latest episode, I was not aware that my wife had walked into the room. The next line out of the, ep- out of the speakers was, she could suck a New York steak through a straw. The look on her face was of utter disappointment in her recent decisions. Love the show. Wouldn't change a thing. Three to five stars. Loyal sucker, Michael. Uh, love it, Michael. Well, you know, I, hopefully she accepted that line as a, as a challenge. Also, what the fuck? Your family is lucky you have a good sense of humor. I'm pretty sure they could all be in prison for that hazing. That, that was brutal. 
That sounds like they fucked you up good. And I'm not going to lie. I would love to have been there with them doing it. Right? How fun would that be if you're on that side of it? Sounds so fun to fucking kidnap a family member. Just rough them up for a while. I bet they were giggling their asses off. Uh, thank you for the last man. Uh, Super Sucker Blair now wants to keep the funny going. With an update from around the Green River Killer Suck days, this just made me laugh. I hope it makes you laugh too. Blair writes, Clean Ween product review as a 47-year-old <laughs> bedwetter. I was excited when I heard about your new product. I know it's my mother's job to clean my ween <laughs> after an unfortunate nocturnal event, but I'm married, so my wife does it. But it's okay because she's like a mother to me. I was excited when I was notified that the product had arrived at my local post office. I slipped on my size. <laughs> I find this so funny. I slipped on my size five Velcro Pumas. Ah, I got a little feet. Jumped in my uh, sweet Ford F-350 diesel with 10, 10 inch lift and 44 inch tires. Drove down to pick up my new clean wing. Once I opened the product, my excitement quickly changed to utter disappointment. What type of equine was this made for? The size of the hole and the two-inch thick bar obviously was not designed for the average man. I know because my wife said she looked it up on the internet and at two inches, I'm exactly average size when at max length. <laughs> I tried the product anyway, but was forced to move it around in a circular motion so it could clean my wean all the way around. I had to push the bar forcibly into my average size testicles in an attempt to keep my helmet from disappearing into the lather. After 30 seconds of vigorous cleaning and of course losing maximum size, which once again, my wife says is average, I rinsed and dried off. The real horror came 30 minutes later when I had to pee. My ween had become a flamethrower, trickling lava into the toilet. It was like someone had taken a glass rod and shoved it into Mr. Happy's mouth, broke it off and smashed it. Do some goddamn research and not at the local stables. I like the concept, but maybe you should offer it in several sizes, not just the current Mr. Red size. Three out of five stars, and that's only because I like the burn. <laughs> Blair, I like that. I like that. That was great. That was well done. Oh, man. Reviewing an old fucking nonsense product and so good. Okay, another Oregon Trail update now. Coming in from Domino's Pizza Sucker. No shit, Nelson. How could I not include a Domino's Pizza-related update? Nelson writes, Hey, Master Sucker, my name is Nelson. I've been listening to your stand-up since middle school. I blame you for my fucked-up sense of humor. I started listening to The Suck back in 2019 when I heard a Pandora ad and have uh, been hooked ever since on Bad Magic. I was listening to the most recent episode on the Oregon Trail. When you mentioned Mormon handcarts, I knew I had to write in. I grew up Mormon, left the church when I turned 18. When I was 13, I went on a Mormon trek. For those not familiar, Mormon trek is a several-day event where you dress up like a pioneer and try to live life as a Mormon pioneer. In the olden days, uh, my parents uh, and siblings would have had to ration water, kill and cook chickens themselves, all while walking 10-plus miles a day pushing handcarts and wearing old-timey clothes. When I went in 2015, things were not nearly that bad. We had full medical crews and were allowed to have camelbacks and modern shoes. But even with these modern comforts, I only made it through the first day, three miles before ending up in the medical tent with severe dehydration. The next couple of days, I walked a total of 10 miles before being pulled off the trail permanently by the medical team. This tiny experience of pioneer life left me amazed at the people that could make the actual trip to Utah and beyond. The only thing I could think during the most recent episode was fuck that. Anyway, sorry for the rambling email. It's currently 4.30 a.m. I'm ready to crash. If this, for whatever reason, gets read on the podcast, I would like to shout out to my coworkers at the Domino Store 9106. <laughs> We've had a rough couple of months. At one point, only having five employees to run a 20-employee store. I'm trying to get them to listen to the suck with some success. Anyways, thank you, uh, Nelson. Fuck, I fucking love that you sent this in from a Domino's. Yeah, man, that sounds brutal. And I uh, hope life is getting better for you now. Hope it's not so crazy at the uh, at the Domino's there. I hope you're making some of that sweet Hawaiian pizza. 
Mm, hope you're making that sweet dessert pizza. Man, I could shove some of that in my face right now. I just, so just keep cooking up France's finest cuisine. God, the French love Domino's pizza. One more Oregon Trail update. This is a very quick one. Made me laugh. Pioneer sucker. Funny guy. Jared writes, dude, if you hit enter when you are hunting, you move forward. Jared. God damn it, Jared. Had I known that, I could have saved Lil Joe and Burgers and Showbiz and Lucifina. But instead, they all died in the river. I, I wouldn't have rushed so much. I would have had enough food. I would have slowed down. Okay. Well, that's all for the updates today. Uh, thank you for listening, Meat Sacks. Uh, I, I love what kind of people you are. And, and uh, we'll, get on, we'll get on over to the end of the show now. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Uh, thanks again for listening to this Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Please do not start tricking people into wandering into your murder mansion to kill them and burn them in a coal stove. And don't continually scam the government for extra money. Even evil wizards like Marcel or Marcel Petiot get caught eventually. Just keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. Man, all I talk about awesome French food just got me so hungry. Mmm. What should I get? And I'm so glad we got a lot of French restaurants here in Coeur d'Alene. Uh, McDonald's, Burger King. You know what? Domino's Pizza, the most French. Just get some of that sweet French Hawaiian pizza. Mmm. Oh, bon appetit.